We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings and welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. What is up, everyone? I'm Alan Williams, sitting here with James DeVirgilio. Coming to you after an incredibly exciting Gator win. I can't wait to talk about it. James, you stoked to be back in the studio? It's great. I look forward to to every Monday even more so than I would have when I was just without a podcast. Life before the podcast, Alan. Great to be here sitting next to you, digesting, talking about, thinking about. One of the most fun things for me is, is every weekend, as soon as the game ends, and in fact, now as the game is going on, People will hit us up on Twitter and other places. Our friends talk to us, and and it's really fun to to say things like "Don't worry, we'll talk about it on Monday on the <laughs> podcast." It's like it's a fun thing to say, I think personally. So here we are, beginning yet another episode of this fine podcast, brought to you, of course, by my bookie. And hopefully, all of you had a great weekend of betting on my bookie. And if you didn't, there's always next week. I mean, I'm so pumped to get in here and talk about this game. A ton to talk about. I mean, the first week is usually ripe and full of information, but especially this year because we're playing a conference opponent and not Eastern Washington. So we have much more to learn, much more to put into context. But James, first, let's thank some patrons. As always, if you like the content on this fine podcast, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You can email us if you prefer such a metric. Uh, if you find our cell phone numbers, you can text us, but we try not to publish such information. At any rate, you can also become a patron on Patreon, where you too can give us a dono. Uh, we have a wide variety of donos for you to select from, small, medium, large, Trask. The Trask dono has become the most popular dono category, and for good reason. Why not? As Trask, well it should be. Trask is the truth. Uh, on this very podcast, I think we can take credit for this, Alan. It's a fine line. Do you, do you brag? Do you brag on yourself on a podcast? It's like, do I, do we say, Hey, we were the first people to like publicly be all over the trash train. Cause you listeners already know that. But if you're brand new, you don't know that maybe your friends told you, but we were riding Trask pretty much the minute he came out on film. And so we created a dono level for him. The Trask dono level, 11 bucks a month, XL dono, hundo bombs, 
And of course, you can always come after the, the king on the throne as well. So let's, without further ado, let's recognize some, some people and give these guys some love. Small Dono, Patrick Fox, welcome to the patron squad. Great name. Patrick, Patrick Fox, good to have you. Trast Donos, we have Grambo, which is, I love the nicknames people are employing too. Grambo, welcome, uh, new patron. Kristen Moody, still representing the ladies, holding it strong every single week. We have a level up from Rich Ramirez heading into the Trastono level. Level up from Nathan Jeter, who has been a, a subscriber for a long time. And then an OG, Cody Flitcraft, who has been around since episode one, moving up from a small dono to a Trastono, making the big move. Cody, thanks for being with us from the beginning. Yeah, Cody. Always good to hear that. And then an XL dono from Will Hartley coming in hot. Wow. And then a hundo bomb, dropping bombs from the artist only known as Mike. Mike sent us a great message, wanted to be known as Mike. You can be known as whatever you want to be known as, which is great. You give a dono, we'll call you whatever you want. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. Your, your note was great. We're encouraged by your message. And Alexander Leventhal, who we did get to correspond with after the game. Always great to have a conversation with him. He is still on the throne as the number one dono supporter on Patreon. And many other things, by the way. Yes. Just an all-around renaissance man in and of himself. And lastly... If you find yourself giving more than $300 total support or a hundo bomb to this very show, you get entered into the Hall of Dono Legends. You become a Dono legend where we announce your name every single week. So Alan, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Stash Milicek, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, and now the new addition, Mike. What's up, Mike? Each and every week, you will hear your name called out. Thank you guys so much. And thanks to all of you, again, whether you support us on Patreon or not, it doesn't matter. We love you all the same, but of course, we're going to celebrate those that uh, celebrate us. So without further ado, Alan, let's talk about some football. Let's do it. And before we get into the X's and O's and the analysis, I just want to ask you, how much did you enjoy having football alongside a Gator game day? It was everything I wanted it to be. I mean, like it, you felt invested in it. You know, when you're watching the other games, when you're watching your other teams, it's football, yes. But when it's your team uh, on on the road in the SEC, sure the crowd wasn't there, but it felt great. You know, we had a, we had a full house of friends. Uh, we're all cheering and celebrating. It felt just really like how you wanted it to be. And obviously the game itself led to some tremendous highs and some lows, but it was great theater and it felt fantastic. And I enjoyed every second of my Saturday watching virtually, I feel like every game that occurred. It was a wonderful day. I loved it. So much fun to be watching Gator football. I There's so much anticipation. I didn't realize how much I was looking forward to it until we got right up close to there. Really, really great and uh, our friend Grover, you know, was on our text thread, said something that, you know, is really, you know, spot on. Is like, how much fun is it to watch college football after your team wins? And you get to just kind of revel in all of the pageantry and the upsets and the shocking scores and things like that. Uh, much better after you win than after you lose. And his Auburn Tigers got to win. But, yeah, just such a thoroughly enjoyable day. And, you know, partly because we saw the offense just explode. Uh, you've got written down here a dream day offensively. So much fun to watch that unit. And we had talked about it from the beginning. You know, we on this show, if you've been a longtime listener, you've heard of, you know, Dan Mullen 1.0, 
which was the the heavy run based spread option. Really, what he's been doing all along and did with the Gators when he was here, did at Mississippi State. And you've heard our hope on this podcast for what we've coined Dan Mullen 2.0, leaning into the passing game, more vertical, different route concepts. A little more creative in the passing game. And so that happened, which we're going to break that down. You had the emergence of Kadarius Toney, which we talked about last season. If Tony stays, here's our dream wide receiver lineup, which is exactly what started. In the best case scenario, Tony becomes a reliable route runner, which he was not. He became one on Saturday. Obviously, Trask, who we've been high on, have said from the beginning, this guy has repeatable skills, despite the fact that for a long time, uh, Gator Nation, many other pundits, were, were still in love with Emory. You know, Trask emerges, and I think now the, the world can truly see this was, you know, no fluke. And you have Kyle Pitts, who's obviously the best tight end in college football emerging, and you have the best SEC offensive performance in Florida history. All of those things are things that happened on Saturday. But something else happened on Saturday, Alan. And I know for some of you, you're already thinking, oh, no, James is going to have to talk about the defense. Or you're thinking, oh, yes, I need James to talk about the defense. But, Alan, we're going to talk about what happened to our defense. Was it the personnel? Was it the scheme? Is it how we prep in the offseason? We're going to look at this like coaches look at this. Basically, what are we doing wrong? What could we have done better? Yes, we won the game, and that's great. But what can we learn from what happened on Saturday without just blaming it all on COVID-19, where are we essentially as a defense? And do we have hope or should we be worried that we're in trouble? Yeah, so even trying to put this game into context, obviously we're going to talk a lot about how great the offense was and you know maybe how concerning the defense was. So as you left this game, were you more excited about the offense or more concerned about the defense? I was more concerned about the defense, but that but it's like a coin flip. I was so excited about the offense. You were expecting it to be great, maybe, and it was even better than you thought. Was but it? I didn't know okay. what Dan Mullen was going to be, and I didn't know what Tony was going to be. I had no doubt that Trask was going to exceed and excel like we thought he would have. I've staked myself on it, but I believe in that. I didn't know how much Mullen was going to lean into it. That was a question mark. That was a huge question mark. That is maybe the best thing that came out of Saturday for me but there was this really bittersweet effect from something that I feel like has been our Achilles heel it's well covered on this podcast we support it with the stats and numbers we'll talk about it again today and that was Grantham's defense which is sort of like this man here we have this offense that I just don't think anyone is going to effectively slow down and now we have a defense that doesn't show the same improvements we basically have Grantham 1.0 so Dan seems to have rocket shipped himself into a different style of football. And Grantham seems bullheaded, stubborn as can be. I am not going to change what I do, despite the evidence suggesting what I'm doing is not working. So that for me was a, a weird balancing act. Yeah, I think I came away more pleased than concerned, if I'm going to put that on a scale. Obviously concerned a little bit. Uh, I think looking at the defense, and we're going to break it down, obviously, but there's a lot to be said for the defense having to catch up. I mean, Dan Mullen said essentially in the you know his press conference they haven't tackled a quarterback since the Orange Bowl. Uh, they haven't. They've only practiced tackling a couple times, missing some key personnel. I'm expecting improvement from the defense, but I would be lying, right? I think I'd just be being naive if I wasn't very concerned that they were going to be able to get to a level that would allow us to 
reach all of the team goals. Um, but as you said, this offense looked unstoppable. And again, it might have been aided by an Ole Miss defense that uh, may not stop many people. That remains to be seen. Um, but let's talk about the game itself. The Gators win 51-35. to We predicted slightly lower scores, but a somewhat similar margin. I predicted 33-17. You were 35-17. I think we were a little bit kind of cowed by that weird depth chart release at the end. Now we should have been even more concerned because Ole Miss put up 35, you know, a late score added into there, but a record setting day for the Florida offense, a ton of yards put up a ton of touchdowns point up, put up. Uh, so as you looked at our game plan, how much did it reflect what you expected us to do? I thought it would be instructive this season to talk about what we said we should do. And then, what we actually did based upon film. So sometimes we'll be right. Uh, in the past, we've mentioned, hey, we think we should do this. We're pretty sure the coaches are going to do this. So this was fun in game one because we really, like we mentioned, we were not sure what the offense was going to look like. So what we said last podcast was we should look to pass, utilizing their weak pass rush and weak secondary. And we also should be able to put a run game together. What we in fact did was basically that everything we wanted we wound up with a 61 percent pass to run balance right so 61 39 one of the higher ones of dan mullen's career and we were running the ball very well for us especially given to last year so the fact that this number does not look like dan's old numbers which would have been 45 percent run 45 i mean sorry 45 percent pass even all the way to 40 percent pass instead it's flipped on its head in the game where we could run the ball shows you Interestingly enough, this was this was in fact a true a true morphing. We also ran almost every single play, Allen, out of eleven personnel. Now, if you follow the NFL at all, the Rams famously did this two years ago on the run of the Super Bowl. They ran ninety five percent of their plays out of eleven personnel. That's one running back, one tight end, and three receivers. Uh, it's very popular in college football and high school football anyway. Uh, but we ran almost everything out of that. We didn't run a single snap where we had two tight ends in the field. Uh, so this is leaning into a much more, you can run out of this, obviously, but a more pass heavy, again, more of what we've been wanting in NFL style with a pro style run attack. It was a dream in that sense from our game plan. And I loved that we we stuck with it really throughout the game. And again, that was the game plan. It wasn't that we got into the game and thought, let's change it. This was our plan. And that is a significant shift, I think, in mindset from from Coach Mullen. Yeah, and Dan essentially said this in his press conference as well, that because we didn't really know much about Ole Miss, right? This brand new coaching staff, we've got no film on them collectively, different OC with different head coach on offense and defense that we really focused on ourselves. And so if this is our base package, that's a really interesting, you know, kind of thought that we are, you know, unless the defense really does something strange, we're going to prefer this kind of balance this type of personnel i think that bodes well for success for us long term you know i do think it's very instructive as you said that we could have run the ball more not that we were just gashing them but we were having success enough success that if you wanted to lean on that area you could have uh, i like that dan kept being aggressive down the field we kept pushing the ball we kept trying to score this wasn't a we got a lead let's hunker down so 
if this is reflective of our, like, we don't know what they're going to do. So this will just do our basic stuff. If this is the basic stuff, that's really, <laughs> that's really encouraging for us down the road. Uh, so Ole Miss is they, I'd say attempted to stop the skater offense. What were they trying to do? Well, we thought based upon DJ Durkin's history that they would blitz a lot and then play a lot of man. And that is exactly what they did. They ran cover zero with no safety and cover one as their primary defenses, getting about 15 snaps in that coverage, except they tried virtually every other coverage, yeah. which by the way, leads me to believe something I've already known that DJ Durkin is a good football coach. You've heard us in this podcast for five years now say it, it just mystifies us when coaches don't try everything to watch coaches get beat with the same defensive shell all game long doesn't ever make sense. And to their staff's credit, they tried everything, every coverage you could imagine. They tried it and none of them worked, which is obviously extremely encouraging and also a testament to just how good we are uh, at running offense again on, on week one. Uh, of course, Ole Miss had problems like we did on defense that they will get cleaned up. But regardless, they were they were trying everything. It was not for lack of effort. Uh, and and, our, and again, man, which we talked about last year, was the proper thing to do against the Gators is what they came in thinking, let's see if we can make this work because zone has never worked against Kyle Trask. And great news for us, man got, well, you know, abused. You saw that, especially with Kyle Pitts. I mean, the man coverage against him, I, there, is, there are very few players – in the country who could hope to match up with him in the variety of routes that he can run and the things that he can do in this offense. I mean, he was just abusing people. They were, he was abusing when they double covered him. So if you're going to play man against him, I don't know, but then what's your alternative going zone and watching Kyle Trask pick you apart with those underneath crossers. So man, do you, <laughs> it's going to be tough to stop this crew if they stay healthy. Let's talk about what we did right uh, a lot of things, a lot of yards, a lot of touchdowns, fairly efficient as well. So not just racking up cheap yards, but doing it efficiently. What stood out to you the most about our success? Well, we came into the season knowing that teams are going to attack us trying to play man. That was going to be what they had to do. Why? Because there was some success against Kyle Trask and man last year, largely because of what I felt like was very ineffective route combinations. Very basic, very simple uh, not what you should do to be really punishing man defenses, especially if you have superior talent. What we did, what we did, was come out and face 15 man snaps. We scored five touchdowns against those 15 snaps. Allen, five of 15 snaps, five touchdowns in this game against man end zone. We had 32 first downs, 642 yards of offense, which is of course a UF record. 449 passing, 196 rushing. We were six of 10 on third down, and we won the time of possession battle. So if that's not a complete effort from the offensive side of the ball, I don't know what is, but wait, there's more. Our play calling, 45 passing attempts to 29 rushes, which again, evidence of 2.0 Dan Mullen, very vertical in nature. We saw for the first time a lot, more than one, two-on-one vertical downfield combos that we hit on. It was absolutely fantastic. This proves to me something about Dan Mullen we were hoping was going to happen. That, hey, you know what? Whether or not Dan probably should have paid Trask earlier over Franks, we'll never know, right? We talked about this in the podcast before. It's kind of confusing that he wouldn't have put him in faster. Maybe we should question his judgment. 
it doesn't matter because in life what matters is when you have a change happen, are you able to go with it? And then are you able to adapt if you have something good right in front of you? And that is what he is doing right before our very eyes. He's taking that Urban Meyer step. He's evolving his offense. It's clear that he spent time in the offseason doing just what we hoped he would do, researching what his favorite man beaters were. And again, maybe maybe Coach Mullen had a bunch of man beaters he liked and didn't want to install them. But it seems to me that, in fact, he's gone deep into the well here. And he's put together a philosophy with, here is a playbook of how I'm going to beat man defense. And we are practiced and we are ready. And then finally, Alan, maybe the best sign if you want to be a really good offense, and I'm talking a Kansas City Chiefs level, a Tom Brady when the pass are rolling level, you have to throw the ball to a lot of different players. You can't just key in on one guy. Trask completed passes to 11 different players on Saturday. 11. That is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. This was, again, a complete and utter display of passing beauty. We remarked uh, early on in the game, this is something simple, but a play where... Malik Davis is flexed out wide. He runs a nice little route, a little rub route, pick route, whatever you want to call it, that gets him free. Well, one, we first commented on, hey, he kind of looked nice running that route. Caught the ball well. He looks a little more sudden. Proved that out throughout the game. But that was a great little play design against the defense that they were running. We weren't seeing that as much last year. As you said, uh, you know, it's tough, I think, when you – change midseason like they did with Trask and you're you're still trying to figure out what he can do and what's uh, you know what the offense is capable of producing not just individually but collectively and then you have a whole offseason to evaluate what you did the hope would be that you'd lean into this type of stuff and that they did was really great um, something that I felt the whole game was the offense was totally in control not that every play was perfect or they you know that he never made any mistakes or, you know, we'll talk about where we could improve. Uh, but in that, but right before the half in the two minute drill, uh, we even had a bad thing happen where our very talented freshman Xavier Henderson catches the ball on the sideline, doesn't go out of bounds inexplicably. So we lose like 30 seconds. We still end up getting the touchdown to Kyle Pitts. So it didn't really matter. But even despite like a real boneheaded play like that, the offense just kept moving the ball down the field. Trask completely comfortable, knows he wants to do. You don't really see that type of efficiency out of a college offense very often. That's something you're expecting from a Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. Not that Trask is at that level, but for a college player to be that efficient in that specific situation is really, really impressive. And it didn't seem like everyone was scrambling. It didn't seem like uh, that we just got kind of lucky, um, but that we basically accomplish what we wanted to we we're effective enough in that situation to go ahead and pick up another really important touchdown so that's the type of stuff that's next level stuff not that you can score not that you're explosive but that you have a handle and a grasp on what you're doing that goes beyond just the elementary aspects of the overall structure of the offense yeah and speaking of trask we talked about what could he improve upon coming into this season and one of the things we said is we expect him to be just more professional leading the offense. Things will be in control. He's going to know how to orchestrate it. We're not going to wind up getting delay of game calls. We're going to wind up just looking very polished, even though we have several new receivers as starters. And that's exactly what you're attesting to there. Um, Trask on the day, 30 of 42, 416 yards, six touchdowns and no interceptions. That's a dream day, obviously, for any quarterback. And oh, by the way, we're playing a real SEC opponent. Ole Miss won four games last year. They were competitive in multiple other ones. This is not 
just some horrible football team. Uh, to go do that is great, even in a game one COVID situation. Most importantly, though, the same thing we said about Trask, you know, week one or week two of his career as a Gator is true today. His timing and his accuracy once upon a time were great. Now they're basically impeccable. His timing, when you look at him in the pocket, if we have a clean pocket, is absolutely textbook perfect. He puts his back foot in the ground and the ball comes out. And you watch on the very first route of the game to Copeland on that comeback route. That is a perfect, just absolutely timed comeback route and throw. And Trask did that all day long. That is an extremely high-level quarterbacking skill that most college quarterbacks never, ever get to. Outside of that, he keeps his eyes downfield almost the entire game. He rarely ever looks at the rushers. He has phenomenal pocket presence. His footwork within the pocket, which jokingly, we acted, we did an entire episode on this last year, Alan, jokingly was called out by several pundits last season that Trask's pocket presence wasn't good, to which I said, I don't know what they're watching. His pocket presence is incredible. He consistently slides, moves, steps up, moves out, almost with uh, an uncanny ability to feel uh, where guys are going. And again, he's not perfect, right? At times, sealed onto the ball just a little bit too long. But for a guy who's played how many games now as starter, Seriously. you know, less less than 16 games as a starter to move like this, uh, really just incredible. Now, there are a couple of things that obviously Trask does that he'll continue to work on. One, he occasionally throws off platform, meaning he's not driving from his back foot downhill for no reason. He's not under pressure. He'll just sort of take a ball, know something is going to be open, and not quite get himself to where he can drive the ball enough. These are things he'll clean up. I just think his mind is moving so efficiently and so quickly, he knows that, hey, this route's open. I'm just going to get this ball to him. And while that's okay, uh, when you get to the next level, you're going to need that extra little bit of drive on your ball. I think you'll see him keep working on that. And then he had a few, just a few, Alan. I charted four times where he really had kind of made up his mind pre-snap, where there was a much better play available after the snap. But he threw the ball 42 times. So for four of those plays to be ones where, hey, he kind of locked in on that guy, that's a great ratio. None of them were interceptions. Uh, And again, he will continue to learn as we've watched him learn from those things. So all in all, if you're grading Trask in this game, you are grading him like the whole world graded him hey, this guy is for real. He sort of lit college football on fire on Saturday, and for good reason. Yeah, he looked phenomenal. It's funny watching it on TV versus watching it you know, in person. Because TV, he throws it. You don't know where it's going, and all of a sudden the receiver's just like standing there. And it just looks great. You know, Live, you can see where he's going with it and a little more anticipation of what might happen. Even some of his – man, his best throw might have been – the ball he threw to Grimes, like down the middle of the field, dropped it in between like four guys, and Grimes gets crunched and drops the ball, understandably. But it was a beautiful throw into a really tight window. That is a professional-level throw right there. And so, I again, I would expect only improvement from him as he gets more time with his receivers, as these guys improve, if the offensive line can take another step. It doesn't mean he's not going to throw interceptions this year. Again, we said throwing a few is probably means just a byproduct of being aggressive enough to be successful at a level that we want him to be. But yeah, any criticism of him is just nitpicking at this point because he was phenomenal on Saturday. Yeah, he was. And again, I think he'll keep getting better. Uh, for those of you that are thinking, wait a minute, I saw some passes in the game where his arm strength seemed suspect. 
the truth in that would be when he is moving out of the pocket, he has a tendency to throw with his hips square to the field. So he does not generate nearly as much power as he should. Uh, and that is going to be something I think that he'll have to work on probably the most is his velocity when outside the pocket. Accuracy is still impeccable. He oftentimes finds an excellent person to throw the football to. And in college, that's going to work his whole career. Uh, if you're talking about the NFL, he's going to have to develop some more zip when he's moving outside the pocket. Uh, but again, if you're questioning his arm strength, I can assure all of you, he does not have a weak arm. Put the film on, watch him throw any of the passes where he's actually driving his body with it. And you are going to see what kind of arm he has. If you watch the NFL regularly like I do, on every single Sunday, you can watch rookie quarterbacks get to the NFL, struggle mightily with their proper footwork, and they too are throwing lollipops for picks. Because it's not that their arm is weak. It's that you cannot throw the ball very hard if you are not driving down. And again, Trask's mind is so fast, he thinks, hey, I can get this ball here now. I see it. It's one of his best attributes. But if you're looking at arm strength, rest assured, he does not have a weak arm or a noodle arm. Oftentimes, he's prioritizing accuracy over a missile throw, yeah. which is what a quarterback should do. Get the Timing. ball to where he is, put it in the right place, let the receiver do something. Uh, and again, many, many of Kyle Trask's throws on Saturday were NFL-level throws. Just truly remarkable stuff. Alan, right. equally say, exciting. Well, just quickly about Armstrong. I, I do want to give the caveat. He's not a Pat Mahomes just or think about the best you know, mo- biggest velocity guys in the NFL, Josh Allen or something like that, where he, they're just booming the ball. Uh, so he's, we're not saying he's that either, but that especially at the college level, his arm strength is not going to be a problem. Um, and if he can continue to make improvements, that's all the better. We're talking about projecting him to the next level. So maybe that shows up on Sunday if he gets there, but especially for now, it's not going to be a problem. Even if it looks like maybe he could be throwing the ball harder. And there's certain times where like, maybe you're, especially when the ball goes off the screen, it doesn't look like it's going fast. Um, But he's so accurate and his timing is so good. It's not going to get him in trouble at this level. And again, in the NFL, scouts are not going to be concerned (coughs) with his arm strength, right? The problem, and and I'll peel back the onion here for those of you who'd like to get into this. And just for a second, Uh, indulge me the problem with guys who throw the ball really hard like a Doug Johnson for example is they want to throw the ball right to the player right to the player the most crucial NFL quarterback skill is to throw the ball not right to the player is to put the ball to the space the player is running to so if you think of it like this in most NFL coverages you have a certain window the ball must get to by a certain time and Alan, if your arm is stronger than mine, you can wait a little longer than me to find that window. That can be an advantage if you're Aaron Rodgers and you also understand the game. It can also be a disadvantage if you're a slow processor of football and you're just looking for an open jersey to throw the ball to. If you're Trask, you anticipate, you know where your window is, so you'll just throw your ball a little bit earlier than the, the guy who throws it harder will. You put it in the same spot, same desired effect, right? So no one is going to be like, Kyle Trask's arm is not strong enough to play in the NFL. But, of course, what you see on Sundays in the NFL are a lot of guys that have tremendous arm strength, and they also hopefully have a fast processor. Again, if they don't, they'll get beat out by a guy like Trask. Long story short, uh, Trask's performance thus far, remarkable. Uh, Don't worry if you're one of those people who's constantly saying, but Frank's had a stronger arm, and I wish we had a strong arm like that. Wildly overrated. Quarterbacks are decision makers and distributors, and he is off the charts good 
at those skills. Enjoy it while we have him here. All right, Tony, Kadarius Tony Allen. We talked about him. We said he should not go to the NFL. By the way, this is why. He spent the offseason learning and preparing and getting better. His route running was fantastic on Saturday. Trask was looking for him, whereas last year, Trask almost never wanted to throw the ball to him. And he he ran a whip route one-on-one against their nickelback that was NFL caliber. Extremely good. How excited are you about the emergence of Tony? We talked about it last season, but if, if teams have to double pits, you can't also double Tony. And if we're spreading you out and you have to guard Tony one-on-one with your third best corner, good luck. Yeah, getting him the ball in high potential situations, even that end around, I think we're still going to do that, even if he's a A-plus route runner, because you saw him basically just shed a guy and then explode into the field. I and mean, he's done that his whole career. And the fact that he can run routes. So you, before, if he's on the field, like we're, if he's going to get the ball, it's going to most likely be like a little screen or something gadgety. The route that he ran on the touchdown just made it look easy too, right? Uh, just destroys this guy, catches the ball in stride. Trask puts a great ball on him. That's something I don't think he was capable of last year. Um, you know, he puts his own little flair on that whip route. You know, he's got a little spin move. You see the jukes and everything. So those things are still there. And again, I we'll have to see him against elite competition to see, like, you know, can he shed a guy like Daryl Stingley? I don't know, right? But certainly he's a really impactful player. And if he can be on the field for every snap, again, we just he just wasn't on the field very often before because there weren't there's only so many things you could do with him. But if he can be out there in just regular pass plays, that's going to make us much more difficult to defend, defend and diagnose. Dan, you can't see this if you watch the game on TV and don't have access to the All-22 camera when you can see all 22 players. But there were at least five or six different plays in that game when Tony was also open and available to have balls thrown to him. A couple of those are the ones I mentioned where Trask could have made a better decision. He was roasting whoever they put on him all day long, and he was also running very good zone routes when they had zones against him. So this was, it exceeded my expectations, Alan, for what I thought was possible for him. Uh, Incredible debut. I'm extremely excited. I'm sure the team is going to watch this on film this week, and if I'm Trask, I'm thinking, that's a guy I can go to. And I I think you're going to see that relationship continue to develop as the season goes on. Another guy who was once something, then went away, and and has come back seemingly as advertised is Malik Davis. How did you feel about his performance? Well, the coaching staff, uh, you know, listed him as a co-starter on that uh, notorious depth chart, and I think he deserves it. He looked really good. He looked very comfortable catching the ball in the backfield. Put on some moves that you know made it all the way to social media several times just looked a lot more confident and explosive. Like he was still a capable person. Like he wasn't going to do, you know, he wasn't going to perform poorly, but he wasn't going to accomplish much for you. I don't think last year. And this year it looks like he's actually a guy you want to put the ball into his hands. Not just, I need to spell my starter a little bit. So I think he and Pierce are in a really nice one, two punch there. And he looked great. I was really encouraged because, you know, he's a guy that looks so good as a freshman and to see him come all the way back, is, I think, is really cool. So once upon a time at the University of Florida, whoever was coaching the Gators would get double-digit penalties seemingly every game, well chronicled by both of yeah, us. It seemed like it didn't matter who was coaching, we're always at the top. We thought maybe it was just the jerseys that we wear, right? But 
we come out and we have four total penalties in this game. Uh, I think only two on offense, maybe only even one on offense that stuck. What can you say about that as a testament to something we said that Dan Mullen had from the beginning, which is attention to detail and a commitment to getting rid of penalties? It's phenomenal. I mean, one is just one of those. I mean, the one who stands out, of course, is the Sean Davis penalty, which, you know, it's almost impossible to coach your way out of that. But yeah, it's hard for me to even remember the others. They weren't impactful to the game for the most part. Um, man, it's really, really impressive, especially considering the circumstances coming into this game where you haven't got as many live fire practices. Uh, you're not able to simulate the conditions of, of a game and the speed and the, some of the stuff. But you didn't see mental errors either. So I think the coaching staff give them credit for using the time and the way that they did to get the team ready to play. So really impressive, honestly. Yeah, and this speaks volumes about the importance of the quarterback position on offense, which we've said, we said from the beginning, one of the best things about Kyle Trask being quarterback is his incredible quiet work ethic and that this guy wants to win and that he was not a guy after he took a loss last year that was going to just move on with his life and hang out and not care. He was going to hold people accountable. And when your quarterback is committed to mastering those details, the team can't help but come alongside you. And of course, you'll hear a lot of the national champion Gators say the same thing about their respective teams. And that's what we're seeing on offense right now. A couple other notes I had here. Uh, it's clear that Kyle Pitts has definitely mastered the push off move. Uh, he did it. Old Miss was very frustrated. He consistently did it. They do it in the NFL every single Sunday. It's an but extremely, smooth so you don't catch it live on TV. You only see it in a very extremely small good move. Is it against the rules? Of course it is. Are they calling it? No, they're not. Are they ever going to call it? No, they're not. And it's one of those things where if you're the defender, you kind of have to take his momentum before he can push off of you, which Old Miss just wasn't there yet. But very high level and, and something he's clearly been working on to time getting those passes in practice. And then lastly, there was a rather remarkable hidden component to this game on offense we actually were able to platoon our entire wide receiving core, meaning that we played one and a half drives with all of our starters being out, including our tight end, and Trask stayed in. That is incredible, Alan, because these are all new faces. So to go on the road in a game that was still a game against an SEC opponent in game one and competently play without penalties, without guys turning the ball over, without them going to the wrong route area, to me was amazing. And really a great testament to the level of teaching. Nick Saban likes to say that first we're teachers as coaches, right? My job is to teach these guys how to play. Uh, the teachers on the offensive side of the football, just A++ remarks there. Yeah, interesting the, the way they chose to do that. Um, I would have liked to have asked Dan Mullen of where I in a press conference about why they chose to do it that way. I mean, I, I'm personally a big fan, especially this year, of getting as many guys snaps as you can because you're going to need them. And if you're so afraid of giving these guys snaps, that that's going to leave you in a tough spot should someone get injured, the grind of the SEC, COVID. Interesting platoon the entire core. I think we were, we were less dangerous with that second unit out there, less explosive. Now, again, Trask, and they made it work. Um, I, I'll be interested to see if they'll continue to do that moving forward because there was a clear drop-off. But... Really important to get those guys snaps in whatever function that you do. Yeah, good point. I don't think strategically, and this is the theme of our podcast, that it's ever wise to play a lesser unit when the game is still in contest. And that's something in Coaching Corner that we're going to discuss a little bit about. How do you employ 
your resources, but just the fact that you could do it in that kind of game and not have, you know, things that are obviously way wrong is great. One thing, of course, you notice big time, Alan, is Trask is not going to get nearly as many reps with those guys. And and you saw that timing wise, especially with Xavier Henderson. The timing is not there with those right. two guys right now. The route running, the timing, the ball placement. But that's something that you're going to need to get better with. And, and again, you can't as a quarterback, you just can't get on the same page as all eight of your receivers. It's impossible. Especially you only have enough time in the day. The guys you're throwing to last year are gone. You have new starters already. Correct. You don't have that luxury. So the fact that we were confident enough to do it tells me in practice that obviously it's something we had been doing. Uh, and, and again, something that's going to be useful, I think, in more blowout situations. I'm not going to ruin the, the spoiler for a little bit later. We'll talk about how maybe we would have employed it if it were us. Uh, but let's flip over and, and talk about some things you thought maybe we struggled with. Yeah, you know, the, it, it wasn't a perfect performance. And I, I think if we're going to look at... You know, just okay. We still want to bring some critique and be thoughtful. This is not just all perfection out there. Uh, you know, a few drops along the way from the wide receivers. You've got the, a note there. I was going to mention that as well. And you know, the offensive line, while improved, still left a lot to be desired. Uh, our right tackle Delance still struggling quite a bit on certain plays. Uh, Again, not a cohesive unit. They, they handled their business for the most part, but Ole Miss's pass rush is not stellar. I think that'll be proven throughout the season. They still got a more pressure than I was comfortable with them. Uh, obviously, we handled it. We could move the ball down the field. Run, the run game was better. I wouldn't say it was good. It was effective, right? Um, last year, we couldn't run no matter what. So that's an improvement. Uh, I don't want to downplay that, but still not not where you would say that you would like it to be for the offense to, I think, just excel on every level. Yeah, there were there were plenty of things along the line that the coaching staff is going to be looking at. Unfortunately, Alan, thankfully, maybe is the better term than unfortunately. A lot of it was not what we saw last year, which was if a team stunted, we had no idea what to do. And Old Miss was very vanilla on the D-line because they were just so inexperienced. They couldn't really provide the things in the past that have messed us up. We just have a talent issue right now. And I'm going to give you the polar opposite example here. We talked about Buchanan last year just being an absolute stopgap, filler, you know, completely average center. No offense to him. You saw with Heggie in the game, something we had noted all year long last year was that Buchanan basically never moved anyone even half a yard down the field, and it totally jacked up our run game. With Heggie, that was actually the opposite. Heggie was consistently controlling his man, which allowed us to run through the A-gap. The A-gap is the one right next to the center, and it allowed us to do, uh, you know, to really actually allow Reese at times to move from his guard position across the field and then get a block for a counter run or something like that. So that was much improved, but Delance is not an SEC level player. Agreed. He is weak. He cannot hold his man. In fact, multiple times, Reese, who is limited in his own regard because he's so slow, but Reese is so strong that Reese can hold his man at the line and keep him in his position. Whereas Delance is getting thrown all over the place. He's like a flag blowing in the wind to the point to where a couple of pressures they got on that side was because Delance cannot control his man. So Delance hits Reese. Reese will then lose control of his man, and one of those guys gets through. But that's only because your right tackle is just simply not physically strong enough to hold his edge rusher. This is going to be a problem for the entire season. 
We need to get Ethan White back. We need to not have DeLance playing. Somebody has to emerge. That is going to be a weakness. And then the second one is that Pitts was vastly improved as a blocker, something we needed. And he was controlling Ole Miss when he blocked, whereas Gamble was absolutely overmatched. And clearly we think he's the better blocker since he got most of the blocking reps. And there were at least four plays in this game where he just got annihilated, dominated, shoved off his line against a guy who's a young freshman or sophomore pass rusher. This is not Alabama or Georgia. This is not a five-star guy. We need the tight ends to improve. We cannot expect to beat the best teams if we cannot hold up our pass rush. So those are some items that are legit areas of concern that probably are not just going to go away. It's not technique. It's just a talent issue. It's a strength issue. They were giving all their effort. They just maybe don't have what it takes yet, or maybe they won't. Yeah, Gamble's a little disappointing. And again, hopefully... You know, I don't want to put too much stock in like one outing from him this season, but he needs to be a guy who can, you know, do both things at a high level or high enough level to, you know, kind of earn his spot out on the field. And if he's not going to hold up at the point of attack, then his value as a tight end goes down because he's not obviously the same caliber of receiver that Pitts is. I mean, I think. Hopefully he could be a solid guy. Flashes here and there. It'd be interesting to see how the coaching staff deploys him. If we do go to two tight end sets, is he the other guy on the field? Is it Keon Zipper? You know, I don't know. That that would really give us a lot of variety um, options that we could choose from if he's able to block and catch at a at least more than adequate level. Uh, so the let's move on to the. Topic probably that caused the most frustration in the room. Uh, maybe the most frustration I saw on Gators Twitter was Emory Jones coming in the game. Um, you know, looks speedy and elusive as a runner. A little bit left to be desired, obviously, as a passer. Throws a really terrible interception. Um, but I would think from our perspective, and I know you well enough, that it's not necessarily his performance on the field as much as his usage at all. So, I mean, this is some, I know that you're going to kind of sound some similar notes here, but go ahead and put this in context, why you feel like that's still inappropriate by the coaches. Yeah. So I don't, I don't understand how, again, we have a Heisman trophy candidate and, and turn on your television each and every Saturday. And for the rest of the season, watch Justin Fields or watch Trevor Lawrence or Hey, Watch Mac Jones at Alabama. And you tell me if in the middle of the second quarter or the first quarter on the road in an SEC game, if their backup is going to come in to take snaps away from them. Because the answer is going to be no. Now again, it blows my mind that Emery, who is a good runner and could be a package guy, and if you wanted to use him to get him his eight snaps, because by the way, we pretty much get him eight snaps every single game. It's no longer a secret anymore. Count on it. He's going to get eight snaps almost every game with the occasional albatross in a Georgia game where he didn't get anything. But that's what we're doing consistently. Go back and look at it. It's what he does. What are we doing? I, I really don't understand. And here's the answer, which we talked about. It's got to be to keep him on the roster. It's got to be to keep him happy. That's it's not got to be to keep him though. safe. And, and there's And there's... A line of logic where you could say, it's worth me giving this guy eight plays. 
and dealing with the you know issues that come with that in games that I think I can win, especially to make him happy. My own personal philosophy in life is that when you make people happy on an unjust level, and this is going to sound interesting because I'm saying unjust and that he is clearly the inferior player in this style offense to Kyle Trask. So every snap you take away from Kyle Trask is unjust because if your job is to do what is best for the football team, then Kyle Trask should be playing. And where's the caveat? If you think to yourself, well, if Kyle Trask goes down and I have no one, and if Emery's not here because he transferred, how comfortable am I with something else? Then maybe you make the the neutral ground move, which is seemingly what we've done, to say I will I will make Trask a little unhappy, I'll make Gator fans a little unhappy, and I'm going to give Emery enough playing time to be the carrot that he has available to him. Here is my ultimate problem with that. None of us know the future. Emory Jones may not be the starter at Florida ever, Allen, ever. You don't know. Why? Because you're going to have a quarterback competition next season. He could get hurt this season. Who knows what's going to happen? Nobody would have thought Kyle Trask was going to be our quarterback. You take the best guy at the best time. So I just don't know what this is doing other than to make me go crazy. And then also it puts Emory in a bad spot. We are so good that we should get up. Like every other team gets up, like Bama gets up, like Clemson gets up, and Emory gets to play the entire fourth quarter, and in some games, a quarter and a half. Why are we not doing that? Why is that not the plan? And that ultimately, Alan, is the question I want answered. If you want him to get playing time, if Emory's a guy that says, I'm only going to stay at this school if you give me first quarter playing time, which by the way, I don't think he is. I've never heard him anything about him not being a team guy then why wouldn't you just say, hey, Emory, we're going to get up big and you're going to run the second team like every other team that's ever been good in the history of football does. And you're going to get to play a quarter and a quarter and a half here and there. And you're ready to go in case something happens to Kyle, which, oh, by the way, is exactly what happened to Kyle. Kyle Trask was not getting eight snaps a game. He was on the bench working his butt off, protecting his craft to play football. So I just don't like how this looks and feels. I think it's disingenuous. I think it's ridiculous. I hate the platooning. And it's not going to go away. It is what it is. It's just disgusting to me. And again, there's just no logic for it, Alan, that makes sense. And I don't like the answer, we have to keep him here. Well, well don't spoon feed your players then. Give them a harsh reality in life and say, you want, to, you want to play? You beat that guy out. Let me take the opposite tact here, as I like to do with you. If you're Dan Mullen, you're looking at this season as a potential championship window. And let's say you miss, let's say Kyle Trask were to miss a game because of COVID. And your choices are freshman Anthony Richardson or Emory Jones. And it's a game against a winnable opponent, but you were to lose that game because Kyle Trask was not in it. Those eight plays a game would be worth it to me. Now, again, we don't know the culture of this team. And again, I don't know that those, I do have some thoughts about like, I wouldn't necessarily want to set up the culture of my team that way. But if that's the through line, I can live with that. Um, I do again, I like playing a lot of players in developmental moments, even in like live fire. I think you have to get those guys in, uh, when it counts and not just in blowouts, but the quarterback position is different. So that's not a position where you necessarily want to be running guys on and off the field. So, uh, I'm sure it'll continue and maybe we'll just limit your rants to every other week, but I think Gator Nation knows how you feel about it. And probably most of them feel the same way. And again, I don't like it when he comes in. 
I get frustrated. Uh, but if that's Dan's logic, then I think I could live with it. And I think that there's some line of logic like that. But again, culturally, if I'm coaching, I would never want my team to have that culture. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. And, and, and this is just tough to discuss because this is nothing against Emery. Again, I've never heard anyone say that Emery's not a team guy. But, Alan, if you gave me the option, Emery comes into my office and says, hey, coach, I'm going to stay if you give me eight plays a game and it's going to look like this, I'm going to say, see ya. You're not a team player. Because that's not what Kyle Trask said, and look what he's achieving. On this team, I will do what is best for the team and what's best for you. But if what's best for you is not what's best for the team, bye. I'm not down with that. I'm not catering to that. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's how you build a winning culture. And I'm not saying that we're sacrificing winning culture. Again, the hardest thing about this is we have no idea what the culture is like. All I know is as a long-term solution, this is not a great way to run your football team. Uh, it creates angst and frustration. And look, if you're Kyle Trask, I don't care how great of a guy you are. I don't care who you are. When you're on the bench and you're not playing in a game where you are dominating, you are not happy about it. No matter what kind of a great teammate you are, because again, what is best for the team? Players see this, they feel this. So no offense to Emery. By the way, I don't think that pick was all that crazy. The guy gets into the game and guess what you want to do if you're getting into the game? You want to make a play. They give you a shot play, so you take your shot. Again, you're having counter goals to the team. There's counter incentives here. I don't blame Emery for that. He's taking his shot. He's been waiting all season to take his shot. And unfortunately for him, Delance gets blown up and ruins his shot, which, by the way, was probably <laughs> going to be a touchdown to Shorter. So that's what you get. But, uh, you know, I think Emery himself would run a different offense. And my last point on this is it's never going to be fair, nor should you ever compare Emery to Trask. They are different quarterbacks. What we would do with Emery is very much like what New England is doing with Cam Newton. It would not look the same. And a good coach would tailor stuff to him. There are things that he does well. This is not a critique of Emery being inferior to Trask. He's just not nearly as good of a pocket-passing quarterback. Wouldn't fit this offense. It is what it is. At any rate, Alan, rant over. Ways to improve, which you've already covered. I'm going to highlight with our blocking and our offensive line. That is going to be the most significant item for us to improve on week to week. If we can get that to a good enough level, there's no stopping our offense. No one in the country, including Clemson, could stop our offense at a significant level if Trask has time. That's the only way you're going to stop Trask is to take away his time. So that'll be something to watch as we move on. Alan, who made an impression on you from the offensive side of the football in this game? We've talked about Tony. We've talked about Malik Davis, uh, a guy that got a little bit of mention in the season preview, uh, Trent Whittemore, a guy who looks capable out there, big guy, looks smooth running, good hands. And it looked like when that second unit was out there, we were kind of featuring him. Like he looked like the guy that Trask was most comfortable with. Now he's been there longer than either Justin Shorter or Xavier Henderson, but uh, looks very low rated guy coming out of high school, but looks like he's going to be a contributor on this team. So just good depth. The first time we really got to see him in some meaningful action, Stuart Reese, you know, he's, he's capable out there. I think he's an upgrade over a lot of the guys we could run out there. Uh, you know, notable grad transfer. Actually, it's funny. I, I don't feel like, I feel like this is something you would hear in the broadcast. One of those things that, 
you know, Tim Tebow and Riley Cooper are roommates kind of that you hear over and over and over in every broadcast, but older brother of the younger David Reese, which I don't feel like anyone talked about when he transferred in. Interestingly, uh, your thoughts, anybody else come to mind? Yeah, I thought I thought Reese is interesting. Like you said, he's best to view as an upgrade at the position. He's not a guy on a film that you're going to say, man, that's a super talented right guard. But he's a big, strong guy, and he's going to be extremely useful in pass protection. And imagine a world right now, Alan, where we could put Stone at right tackle and put, I think, a faster Guraj at left tackle, Ethan White's at center, Heggie's at left guard. Now you're talking about something. Because Reese is not, Reese's man is not going to beat him. He's not going to, he's not going to drive him back into the backfield. And that's all you really want your right guard to do on a team that passes as well as we do. There's a path where he's going to be very impactful. If you want Reese to become some all pro, you know, very mobile right guard, it's not going to happen, but he's an upgrade. We need him, especially very serviceable now. for a Correct. plug and play guy. Correct. That's great. That's a good usage of it. So he, he's going to do what we want him to do. He looked like what I think we hoped for him to look like, uh, you know, no like ceiling, crazy expectations for him, but that was solid. But one guy who made an impression on me was a guy who was sort of maligned, has been maligned at multiple points of his career for professionalism and other things, is Billy Gonzalez. He's sort of on fire right now, for lack of a better way to say his career has gone. But Billy took a bunch of new receivers, took Copeland, took Tony, two guys who were very questionable route running, and turned them into what looked like very polished route runners on Saturday. And that is extremely encouraging. Three guys go in the NFL draft. They're on rosters in the NFL. Now you've got your whole other, uh, you know, new platooning receivers playing. They all look pretty competent. Routes look pretty nice on film. People know where they're going. They're setting up correctly. So a lot of praise, I think, deservedly so, goes to him for preparing that wide receiving core. Another guy I wanted to discuss, kind of another newcomer, Justin Shorter, you know, former top 10 recruit, five-star guy. You know, it's funny. I didn't really, I wasn't super impressed with him. Again, he's he's new. You know, want to get him more reps. I'm I'm reserving judgment. He didn't seem as sudden as you would want for a guy from his talent level. So if you look at Grimes, his athleticism just jumps like off the screen at you. Now, Shorter is a huge guy, you know. I don't know his tactician level as a route runner with his hands, but just the stuff that we were having him run is like, mm, that wasn't the most impressive. Now maybe he'll end up being really capable and really impressive down the road, but not a great first impression. We'll see how he does moving forward. Yeah. And I was more neutral on him. I think, you know, the Embry Jones pick was going to be thrown to him and he, he beats his man, but it's some polished stuff. So his man holds him pretty significantly, which by the way, they didn't call and they should have called and the pick would not have even been a pick. Uh, but, you know, kind of hand placement, movement in and out of his route, clearing his man as he makes his move. I think those are just polished things. He's only been working with Billy now for a couple of months, really. And looking at the improvement that a guy like Copeland made with one whole year, I think the story for shorter this year will be really big body. Maybe he develops into a guy you get 10 to 15 snaps out of. Maybe he's a red zone target when we go four or five wide. Uh, but you know, I think he's going to have to become proficient at the little things. And I'm encouraged because I think obviously he has the physical body to do things. But like you said, he didn't immediately come out and look like a Van Jefferson right. or someone who's, man, this guy's put it together. But I think that's why he wasn't playing at Penn State is he's probably still a little bit raw. 
we'll see what happens with him. The guy obviously is a, is a freakish athlete size-wise, especially for a wide receiver. As a last note on offense for me, Alan, this now makes three out of our last five games that we've had 500 total yards of offense. And we've had 400 yards, 13 of our last 18, basically meaning that almost every single game Trask has played, we've had more than 400 yards on offense. And many of those were with the worst offensive line in the SEC. Really remarkable stuff. And and if, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, especially from me, because I'm way biased towards this, please recognize the extreme importance in selecting the right quarterback. Because if, if you had a guy like Felipe Franks or Treon Harris or go name all the other ones on this team right now, this team is not half of what it was. And that's not to dog any of those guys. It's to highlight and celebrate what happens when you get an exceptional quarterback at any level. Again, not dogging the other guys. This is just recognizing what football can be like and how hard it is to make that happen in absence of a quarterback. Um, so again, Florida, we kind of feel like, hey, we should always be great. Um, of course, that comes with getting good quarterbacks. And we're all hoping that now that now that Mullen's got 2.0 and he's got Kyle, that we can begin to only really recruit guys to enter into this kind of system because this is going to be very exciting to a lot of top quarterback recruits. And, you know, putting up 51 points will go a long way towards getting that points per game average up that we were predicting. So you're going to need some of those games to be above 30 points because there might be a few where you're just under it around it. But feeling a little more confident about my prediction there. Let's talk about the other unit that, for as great as the offense was, this unit was pretty concerning. The Florida defense, you know, during the long, miserable offensive drought they experienced we could always count on the defense being top notch um we're not used to seeing them flail around as much as they did against an admittedly very impressive old miss old miss offense what were your initial pre- impressions of this defensive performance isn't it funny alan how at any level of football this seems to be what happens is when you actually get a great offense your defense first at times inexplicable reasons isn't good and I'm not saying we're not going to be good, but but this is true in a lot of football facets. And it's, it's weird to me because what you just said is so true. We have had such an incredible defense for so many years. And we've said, man, if we just had an offense, we'd be so good. Uh, so that's interesting. But I, I felt like for me, we just didn't look prepared. And this goes beyond, I want to caveat this. This goes beyond the expected level of we're not going to tackle very well. We haven't got to hit a lot of people. You know, Dan Mullen said we've only had really two scrimmages where there was full contact. We haven't hit a single quarterback in a year since we played in the Orange Bowl. So take all those things into consideration with all of the analytical comments we're going to make. These, in my opinion, go beyond what you would expect your football team to go through as a week one tackling exercise and everything else. And we'll kind of break down why some of this stuff happened. But in one word, this was a disaster on defense for me. Uh, We allowed 29 first downs, a 72% completion rate to Matt Corral. They were 9 of 14 on third down. They had 613 yards, 474 passing, 14.4 yards per pass. And look, you're thinking, wait a minute, we lost Sean Davis. We're missing Brad Stewart. Fine, that's all fine. But here's what I want to give you. Here are Grantham's numbers, which we posted on Twitter last year, as judged by the opponent's quarterback rating. So what did the opponent quarterback get as a rating against Grantham? 
These are power five teams only, Allen. We'll start with this year in 2020. Matt Corral had a rating of 132, which is basically nearly perfect. Shredded. Let's go to 2019. Versus LSU, UVA, and UGA, who, if you look at our schedule, really were the only three you would consider good quarterbacks we faced last year. 130 was the quarterback rating. 2018, we faced a young Joe Burrow, UGA, and Missouri. Again, one of the benefits we've had at Florida is we're not playing good quarterbacks. That was a 97 QBR. All others, all other teams we faced in this span with Grantham, we averaged about a 60 QBR. So in my opinion, Grantham feasts against weak quarterbacks, and he gets annihilated by ones that know what they're doing. Sadly to me, Alan, this goes beyond missing some starters. This is a consistent theme that has a lot to do with several things we're going to talk about, whether it be scheme, personnel choice, or just preparation in fall camp, regardless of a COVID year or not. So for me, disaster. I want to cue you up a quote. And before I say that, I want to say one thing about the depth chart. Tyler Rummery, our number one fan and longest supporter, when we when we had our reaction to the depth chart on our podcast last week, was saying, hey, listen, Dan Mullen does not care about the depth chart. Don't listen to what it says. To which prompted me to reply, then what is the point of releasing an entirely fictitious depth Unless chart? Unless it's just a misinformation campaign. Why? I don't know. These are questions I want answered. It's ridiculous either way, but obviously it's clear that that was not, in fact, a real depth chart. And why do you do it? I don't know. I still want that question answered. Somebody ask him and figure it out. But we had a different defense. We had Jaden Hill and Elam at corner starting, uh, but really Jaden Hill and Chester Kimborough played about equal snaps and then Marco was at the nickel but here is what I want to do to encapsulate what the Florida defensive day was this is a quote from Lane Kiffin who you can never trust but take this quote after the game his initial reaction after saying yes Florida's putting up video game stats and good for them he says offensively for us it was good because we had not played well in the passing game in the last couple of scrimmages we didn't come close to this against our service, meaning scout team. So it was great to see us do that against a team that a lot of people don't do this to. They've got a really good defense. Now, some of this is going to be Lane puffing up his own offense. Sure. But I'm sure a lot of this is not entirely untrue. They got the peak max output out of their passing offense. And again, in my opinion, Alan, as we walk through this, a lot of this had to do with some very completely inexplicable decisions, either preparation-wise, scheme-wise, or whatever the case may be in this game. And some of this definitely had to do with the hand that we were dealt. Sean Davis getting knocked out early for an unlucky ejection and some mysterious suspensions that no one ever knows because Dan Mullen won't tell us. So there's a lot going on here, but this I think is going to be a very interesting walkthrough based upon what I saw on film. Yeah, you know, and I will say that I was very impressed by Ole Miss's offense. They were dangerous at every level. It wasn't just some fluky stuff. We did not play well at all, and we'll talk about maybe why we didn't. But I do want to say that I was very impressed by this offense, and I think it might be one of the better offenses we face all year. It's hilarious now that you know, the SEC West with Mississippi State and Ole Miss running these type of offenses – the West becomes even more chaotic, I think. Um, so this is a really good test for our defense. Like, right. So they're going to have their eyes open right away They're They can be under no illusions, illusions that they, because they played inferior opponent that they played well. Uh, they got lit up 
and there's blame there's enough blame to go around everywhere right from the back end some of the stuff going on the defensive line linebackers not always being in the right spot some of the coverage there there were some people who played well we'll get to them it wasn't all terrible all the time but to give up that many yards and at that efficient of a rate a team as talented as Florida should never do that so let's talk about our game plan what we were attempting to do obviously we were failing all over the place what were we actually attempting to do failing all over the place I like that we were but we said coming into the game that based upon film of Lane Kiffin and what what has been known to slow down Lane Kiffin from other teams that have good athletes is to play a lot of man cover one zero even cover two man with the rare zone look depending on doubt and distance to attempt to rob things or steal things or take plays and that the linebacks and linebackers and safeties must hold the edge, stay disciplined, and obviously make tackles. That's the recipe. That's one. That's the aggressive recipe to stopping spread. The other recipe, which I will talk about later in the podcast, is a different philosophy. But there are really two, I think, good ways to try to stop a spread offense. What we chose to do was play eight of thirty-three snaps in man, eleven in cover two, which, in my opinion, and really most any other defensive strategist, is the worst base coverage against the spread offense it is by far the easiest to attack Uh, you saw lane kiffin attack us just profusely splitting those safeties deep again i was shocked to watch us play so much of what i think is a very foolish defense we also played a lot of robber with our safeties which is inexplicable to me alan we mentioned on the on the pod that lane kiffin likes to take vertical shots the robber is when you'll bring a safety or a linebacker into a zone across the middle of the field to try to rob a, a pass being on a dig route or something that's run maybe 10 to 15 yards. Lane Kiffin has never really run those routes. And he purposely ran people to the robber spot and then ran another guy past it all day long. So we like thought we had something, but really he was he was very much next leveling us game three wise. Marco Wilson was just going to man Elijah Moore all over the field. So if you're a basketball guy, it was like a box in one. Hey, you just chase this guy everywhere. Uh, No matter what happened and how he did it, which I think is extremely foolish. It wound up being extremely foolish. Marco Wilson had easily his worst game as a Florida Gator. He looked absolutely terrible, disinterested, didn't want to make contact, and got owned by by a guy who's going to play in the NFL. We highlighted him. He is going to be an NFL slot receiver. But, But again... Why we chose to employ the game plan we did, knowing that this is the one guy they have that's NFL caliber on the passing game. And we just said, yeah, Marco, you chase that guy all over the field, knowing we're going against Lane Kiffin, who's who's an offensive wizard, who's clearly going to engineer things to say, if you man, man, we make this so hard on your guy. Just baffling to me, Alan. Again, just really surprising. And a lot of this stuff... This is not PhD level defense. I mean, high school defensive coordinators would think I probably want to run one of these two things against spread. This is we're not asking them to be Bill Belichick here. I'm just I was befuddled. This was one of the worst things I've seen us do strategically, and I've seen Grantham do some dumb things. I was very, very frustrated, obviously. And it continues my narrative of saying, and this might sound harsh, that I I'm in the camp that I wish we didn't have Grantham. And it's hard to go on a podcast and say this. Of course, all of you know we're not homers. That's not what Alan and I are, me especially. But you never want to like come after someone. I'm not coming after Grantham personally. I don't know him. It's not like, oh, hey, hey, Grantham, James hates you. It's not that at all. I just, as a general, 
I don't see eye to eye with the tactics that we employ on defense. I think it holds us back. I think Lane Kiffin undressed us in this game beyond just the COVID stuff. Now, what I want to ask you, Alan, is the counter to my thesis here is, hey, wait a minute. We were missing several starters and Sean Davis went out. We couldn't do what we wanted to do. How much stock would you put into that being a viable explanation? How far can we take that as as the main reason why we did some questionable things strategically? Potentially a long way. Um, let you mentioned how much cover two we played. I wonder if that's what we felt most comfortable with Donovan Steiner and a true freshman Rashad Torrance and a new guy at safety Trey Dean. That that we're trying not to give them too much, too many things that they weren't comfortable with. Again, I don't know what they've been predicting. I wonder if the defense had only practiced very vanilla schemes similar to what the offense did. We don't know totally what they're going to run so or who, what quarterback they're going to employ. Are they starting Matt Corral? Are they starting Plumlee? So we're just going to practice this base defense, and we just weren't ready to switch in and out a lot, and especially maybe got gun-shy when Sean Davis goes out. Now, is that the wisest I don't know, route to take? Probably not. Should we have anticipated Lane Kiffin doing what he did? Maybe so. That's the hard, that's like kind of the unknown for me. Like, dude, they're humans, right? I mean, you gave some context to Grantham that maybe this is like, maybe to be more expected from him than just a weird circumstance. But did they go conservative there because of who they had on the field and who they were missing, especially at, a very key position against this type of offense. Um, no one played well, like overall, other than maybe you could talk about Ventral Miller at times, you know, a few people here and there, but especially on the back end, no one looked really great. Even Kyrie Elam, who we have high expectations for, did not have like a spotless, flawless game, obviously. So um, let me turn that right. We're talking about these guys. Let me turn it back around to you. How much... Let's say Brad Stewart and Sean Davis play in this game. I don't know. How much do you think gets fixed? Well, this comes down to the the scheme that we utilize. So I, I like what you were leaning towards, and I can give real examples. You know, most of you on the pod know that I coach a professional flag football team. You know, Daniel Warfel's on there, Michael Vick. We've had, you know, Percy Harvin came out. We've had Major Wright and Brandon James and Ahmad Black and a you know, bunch of other great guys out there, Frankie Hammond, et cetera. And one of the things that's true of anyone is when I'm teaching those guys who come from a traditional tackle football into, hey, here's so we're going to play defense in flag football, which again, you still cover one, two, three, four, and zero, but there's different tendencies you play. There's a learning curve that you have to teach them. And if I only have a month to prepare my team and they're all inexperienced, I'm going to have to limit what I can do on defense. So that that's a real fact. And the reason I have to limit it is I can't go against an up-tempo team like Lane Kiffin and and risk blowing a coverage communication wise so i do have to play more vanilla as you're calling it but this was a situation alan where we had weeks to prepare for this game and again you don't have to tackle people to put your guys in the kind of scheme you want to run and for the most part our players and we'll talk about this in a minute were not only confused with what they were doing and where they were going which is a big problem but the scheme we were trying to execute even if it was executed correctly in my opinion, was a low percentage scheme. Like we were not choosing the best way to stop them. And and sadly at halftime, I figured, hey, you know what? 
Maybe we'll go in and we'll switch to something different. You can go on a whiteboard and draw a couple of concepts. Hey, you know, we're getting torched by Elijah Moore. We're going to double him. We're going to do this here. We're going to stay single high. We're going to put another DB in. There's things you can do. We did none of it. We just That's kept true. Marco Wilson, manning Elijah Moore, getting annihilated. We put in CJ McWilliams, who got annihilated by Elijah Moore. That's a good idea. Let's put Marco Wilson's getting torched. Let's put CJ McWilliams in on a one-on-one. Just inexplicable stuff across the board. So I'm going to say that, of course, it matters, especially because you know how much I think of Sean. I think he's a fantastic safety. I think he's a phenomenal cover guy. He's very versatile. He's also a great tackler. Of course, it makes a difference. Donovan Steiner is not an SEC-level player. He's horrible. So you take a Brad Stewart guy who's fine. I don't love Brad Stewart. He's fine. You replace him with a guy who's a sieve. Things are bad, right? You can't hide everyone. But regardless of all of that, I don't like how Grantham chooses to try to stop good teams. And I don't have any logical defense of it. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. There's there's opinions in football. There's different ways to stop people. But Grantham continually uses like an option that most people would, would be like, I'm not going to use that option. And that's the part that gets me. If there's a best practice, why does Grantham seem so far away from it all the time? And, and here's my last thought on this. There is definitely a different level of football coach. And it's not just by age, because how old is Nick Saban? You know, he's, what, 70-something, 70 right? Yeah. So how old is Bill Belichick? You know, 70. Right? So it's, this is not an age-related comment. It's a mindset. But there is a coach that's sort of the old-type football coach. We run these things. We do these things. And then there's the new coach, right? The Sean McVay, uh, the Belichick, and the Sabans are the new coach because they always change. They always adapt. To me, Grantham seems like the old coach. He runs the stuff that he runs. He does what he wants to do. And he sort of just doesn't care that, hey, this is not working against good quarterbacks that are running a spread. And I'm not going to try to run a new defensive front, which we'll talk about later. That stuff drives me crazy, Alan. So certainly, would the defense have been better? Yes, it would have been better. Would it have been optimal like we saw out of the offense? No way. And that is why I question it. Not tackling. If I miss tackles, fine. Why are we not even remotely in a shell that makes sense? That part is always going to irk me way more than one guy missing a tackle, which is way down the line of things that would concern me as a strategist. So Ole Miss's game plan, they they attacked us everywhere on the field. You've got a note here. Wide, vertically, they really used Elijah more smartly. I was very impressed about how they got him open. Yeah, and Lane Kiffin did it to us. Like, I mean, it, and we're not the first team that he has scorched. So, yeah, I mean, were you impressed at all by the way Ole Miss was attacking? Oh, super impressed. I love Lane Kiffin's offense. You know, we had talked about it. It's too run heavy for me. I think that if you stop their run, you really limit what they do, which we didn't do, by the way, which is a problem, obviously. But they hit the number they want to hit 55% run, 45% pass. We talked about it leading into the week. That's a dream scenario for them. They missed a lot of plays, Alan. If you go back and watch the film, that was not a fluky 35 points for them. In fact, it was fluky on the low end. Right. They had wide open guys on at least six plays that were touchdowns that they didn't get because the D-line heroically saved us. Uh, the pick that Cox generated, that's a walk-in corner route touchdown where we blow a coverage again, where Marco Wilson is just inexplicably standing in no man's land, which he did in multiple occasions. Um, very confusing, but I was very, very impressed. Of course, Alan, like sure. We didn't do things I liked, but he completely undressed us with his best player who, again, 
We come into the game saying, this is the guy we got to stop. And he goes, yeah, no problem. He's going to have 200 plus yards and a career day. And there were at least five times, and if you've ever followed Lane Kiffin, you know this, and if you don't, you can Google this for yourself and see, but there are at least five times in this game, before the ball is thrown, Lane Kiffin is on the sideline and he raises his arms up in a touchdown celebration because he knows they're about to complete a big pass on us. Now keep in mind, this is before the receiver has even made his break a lot of times. But he already knows that we're in a coverage where the safety is going to try to rob a spot or he's going to three on two us deep. Bingo. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. it. That's disgusting. That is crazy. He was reading our souls so well that, again, more than five times in a college football game as a play caller, he knew before the ball was even thrown that he had us. That's bad. That's really bad. And sure, we're more vanilla, but there's other things we could have done. So hats off to him, Alan. I mean, you don't just luck into those kind of scenarios you have to earn that he earned it but again for us on our end that's frustrating well miss is not a complete football team while they're good on offense and Matt Corral's a four-star recruit and he can throw the football and Elijah Moore's an NFL player they don't have 11 NFL players so I would expect you know us to have done something but either way great game plan by them clearly and thankfully we don't play them again for the rest of the season okay let's talk a little bit about what we did right not a lot We'll highlight one guy who won, I think, SEC Defensive Player of the Week, which is funny, coming from our defensive effort. Uh, Vincho Miller, a lot of tackles. Now, sometimes a lot of tackles. If you're in the secondary, that's not good. A linebacker, you're fine him filling up that category. Right place, right time a lot. I was impressed by his burst into the gap, either on a sack or blowing up a run, key run play. We did hold him in a few key circumstances, and that's what really – allowed us to stay ahead of them in the game. Um, I know we've been a little critical of him. And, you know, he's still not like he's not an ace in coverage. But what did you think about his play? You know, watching live, I was really like, man, Ventrell is struggling to get sideline to sideline because there were seemingly no linebackers on the field that you could tell. And then you'd have moments, you know, in the second half where he's really hitting people and you're like, okay, great. If he can find the right gap, he's doing well. I was very pleasantly surprised on film to find that he played an excellent game start to finish. In fact, there are very few times when anything was really ever his fault. He hit the right gaps. He got things going. I'm sure they're going to want to see him grow a little more to be the Mike linebacker that gets people lined up correctly because he was not doing that. I think he was trying. He's just not there yet. Also, that's really hard to do against Lane Kiffin. So you saw him motion over. You saw him at times trying to move Steiner. Uh, you know, But David Reese was so gifted at that that he would make sure that even our, our worst players were in the right spot. But all in all, very good game from him. Our D-line was more or less really solid at generating pressure, uh, was also quite undisciplined at controlling the gap, which we've seen before out of Florida. I think we've seen already tremendous dividends of changing our defensive line coach and now being in year two of that and looking at what's gone on in that position group because they are much better at generating push up the field. And I think they were wildly excited to play this game and they overran their gaps quite frequently. And that really hurt us. But, Alan, in the this grand the scheme where of we things, did well. in the grand scheme of things, though, I would much rather have a week one defensive line that's blowing up the offensive line to their detriment than one that cannot get into the backfield. This is a very correctable thing. To tell a guy, hey, you got to know the situation. Your job in a 3-4, and by the way, we run a 3-4 defense, so there's a nose tackle and two defensive ends. 
the job of 3-4 defenders is primarily at first to stop the run. So those three guys, those big guys you see in the line, their job is to get in that gap and just hold it and stop the run. Secondarily, they're pass rushers. I think we're just so amped to pass rush, we're blowing through these gaps. So what happens is if you run past your gap you're supposed to control, you create big holes for either the quarterback or the running back to run through. And while you feel like, man, I'm generating all this pressure, the offense is actually using your momentum against you. So that's something that will get corrected. But I thought the pressure we generated was great. Obviously, Cox was tremendous at affecting the game. Uh, There were a lot of guys that affected the game positively, where, again, if they didn't get in the backfield, Old Miss has two to three more touchdowns in this game. Right. So they were the ones that shown the most. And then lastly, I'll mention, of course, my guy, Chester Kimbrough had a phenomenal game. He missed about two tackles. They pretty much never threw the ball his way. In fact, their wide receivers almost never caught a pass. It was all Elijah Moore and the running backs. But for our young guys, Jaden Hill and Chester, if you watch them on film, they were almost always rotating correctly. They were in the right places. They were not blowing assignments. It was the middle of the field players that really got us. Uh, and that's good, you know, cornerback development continues to be really strong. So that was a bright spot there. They didn't really get a chance to impact the game much. So you didn't notice them. I think only two passes even really went those guys way. Uh, so that was still a bright spot, though. Very competent at the corner spots for this game. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about Brent Cox. I I think he was as advertised. Um, he's a different style of player than maybe what you got out of Jonathan Grenard. I don't think he's going to be as solid in every phase of the game, at least not yet, but he's way less experienced, obviously, than the Grenard that we were getting from Louisville. So maybe in time, but looks like he's got a ton of speed and power. He is a supreme athlete. Um, He's somebody that the other team is going to have to account for in every game. And so I was impressed by him. Again, a more mature, more polished, more accomplished Brenton Cox, let's say the Brenton Cox, if he's still here in two years, would have just eaten this Ole Miss offensive line. He would have had like seven sacks. He couldn't quite accomplished everything you know i i was impressed by tj slayton a lot in this game he gosh it's hard for a guy his size to play as many snaps as he did and still be competent at the end of the game uh we basically were you know we almost had our speed pass rush on the field the entire game because we were having to play cox slayton uh zach carter and then david reese younger david reese obviously that's a very small unit and so there were times when we were getting affected running the ball because that's a, such a small defensive line. I think we really miss Kyrie Campbell and his size and his ability to be both productive in the run and pass. So bright spots along the defensive line, but still very much some concerns for me. Marlon Dunlap is a guy who played a lot of snaps and he's just a dude. He's like, He's not going to kill you most of the time, but he's not going to really do anything positive for you either. And having a guy have to play that many snaps is, you know, it, that's dicey for sure. Um, if And who knows about Campbell? We'll talk about him in a little bit, whether he's ever going to be back on the team, but that's that loss showed up for me today or on Saturday. Uh, let's talk a little, we talked a lot about where we struggled. Um, maybe we can just add anything. But I want to ask this. They played at a really high pace and tempo they were very aggressive at getting to the ball and getting it snapped how much did that affect us tremendously that was the the biggest i think effector of of their easy yards and easy plays i would venture to say that on the majority of our plays we we never fully were lined up 
which is horrible, really amateur level play from Florida. Again, you know they're going to do this. What what I what I lean you into should this, know. Yeah, you know, Lane Kiffin always does this. I mean, if we can do a podcast where I can say definitively they are going to tempo you as quick as they can go, then you should know it. So there's no excuse, but it absolutely destroyed us. They had multiple snaps, Allen, where we only had maybe one defensive lineman with his hand on the ground. True. I mean, that that's inexcusable. We had at least 12 snaps where we had a eye formation out of our linebackers. Not out of the running backs, Alan. Our linebackers were not. They were stacked on top of each other. That's insane. And neither one of them was moving the other one to get into a gap. You can't play defense if you're if you're not spaced out across the field correctly. That was due to them confusing us thoroughly. Of course, their pre-snap motions also did the same thing. I thought, well, the thing that really burned us frequently, and it was whether we were blitzing or rushing three, was Matt Corral scrambling. I don't think we were ready for him to do that at all. I think it took us way too long to realize he's going to tuck this in a run, not just infrequently, but if he has the opportunity. I mean, that extended drives, that that was eating up 15, 20 yards of play, and he was really effective at it. I looked like we had no idea he would do that. And that comes down a lot to, again, like our safeties continue to be a black hole of, of disaster mode. Like at times we're playing a lot of zone. Well, why do you want to play zone? So that your players can keep their eyes in the backfield on the ball so that you can stop people running. You can stop screenplays. And we would inexplicably, Alan, have defenders turning around the wrong way, not keeping their eyes in the backfield. Like that's got to be where your strong safety comes downhill and hits the quarterback or where your linebacker breaks off his route and hits the quarterback. We were way too slow, way too late. I will say there, you said something correctly though. No one has seen Matt Corral run like this ever at all. He was an athlete, but not employed like this. That one did catch us by surprise. But again, in some situations as a defensive coordinator, put a spy on him, plan for it, slow down your defensive tackle. Hey, this guy's probably going to run his third and 15. We made no such adjustment just walking down the other things that i noticed um a little more briefly of course we could go you know on forever about things that happened but we talked about our scheme one easy way to look at this is you have 11 pieces on the board to play with our scheme frequently wasted an entire player to the point where we had a player guarding basically nobody so the play either went away from his side or he covered grass that nobody ran to that's extremely bad you cannot afford to do that against any offense, let alone a spread offense that's trying to create space. That affected us greatly. They frequently two-on-one us in the safety department. They abused on purpose whoever they thought the weakest player was. They frequently attacked Steiner. Steiner gave up multiple huge plays, biting on everything they want him to bite on. Again, he is a sub-SEC player. In my opinion, he should never play. Um, but here he is continually marching out there. They knew it. They used him. They abused him. In fact, oddly enough, our freshman, uh, Torrance, did way better, way better. He was way more sound, so they were not purposely attacking him. They were creating situations to attack Steiner. He obliged. Um, Marco, again, we mentioned, just had an impossible time shadowing more. Can I mention Amari Bernie is a guy that we've repeatedly praised, and he's a guy that unlocks a lot of potential defensive alignments for you because of his versatility. And he he disappeared out there. I don't remember him people mentioning him unless it was like he's running behind the play. Like this was a guy. If you're going to play him that many snaps at linebacker in a coverage tight situation, it feels like he should have been making plays all over the field. 
but they basically like erased him. I, he he had no impact on the game whatsoever, either in the pass or the run. It seems like maybe he didn't understand what he was supposed to be doing out there. Now, again, maybe his best strength is like they've got a tight end and just, hey, cover this guy and he'll like shut him down. But he was either lost or misdeployed. I'm not sure, but a big zero out of him from this game. Yeah, I can be sure it was both. He was lost and when he was deployed to correctly, he wasn't wasn't getting the job done. But yeah, he was really poor on film. Again, probably his worst game as a Gator. Uh, we, we got annihilated by the mesh route. Of course, so did yeah. LSU against Mike Leach, but they just killed us all day long. It's like we had never practiced against a mesh route. Obviously, we mentioned Corral's running. Once again, Alan, a very concerning theme with Grantham is we cannot drop eight guys. Dropping eight is an important theme in football, especially when the down and distance is a long way to go and you're playing a spread team. Dropping eight means that you only have three men rush and eight guys play coverage. We allowed yet another third and double digit uh, play to occur. In fact, we allowed multiple of them. We continue to play off man in these situations, allowing a completely free release. We contact the, re- the, the receivers, not at all. So their timing is perfect. They're running full speed. We're standing still. It's like we just don't practice these things. Um, we routinely stay in nickel despite being better suited to play dime, which we talked about at length last year. Take off Bernie, put in another DB. You have plenty of them. Bring in Jaden Hill, bring in Chester Kimbrough, have Elam in there as well. Play Marco Wilson. Why wouldn't you do that on third and 15? It's a faster, more athletic team. We don't do it. Just a lot of question marks there. Um, you know, individually, like we mentioned, Steiner, again, just is overmatched. And that shows up big. If you have a good safety there, a lot of these plays don't occur. The one thing I want to talk about, because it's gotten a lot of coverage, is Steiner bites on an underneath move that Matt Elam looks like he gets beat on. So Kyrie Elam, Elam. Yeah, Kyrie Elam. Matt Elam. Here we go. Yeah, right. Kyrie Elam uh, basically loses the top of the route. He gets turned around on a really, really nice uh, you know, corner post route is what it is. And he turns himself around which is okay because Kyrie Elam's job in this one, Alan, is to keep the receiver funneled to the safety. So what I mean by losing the top of the route is when you're playing DB, you want to have yourself right behind the receiver, basically, so you're closer to the end zone than he is, and you're able to kind of keep a hand right on him. So if he turns, you can turn with him. Well, if you lose contain, Elam bails properly back to the outside because the corner route is his responsibility. He's supposed to have help from Steiner in the middle of the field. So although on film you think, man, Elam just got torched. In reality, your safety, who's ball watching in the back of the field and just eats Corral's little pump fake, is taken out of the play. Elam bails to his responsibility. You get a wide open touchdown on the post move. That looks really bad for Elam. That's not actually Elam's fault. Uh, And there's multiple scenarios where that happens with other guys. So those are some blown coverages. Would Sean Davis allow that to happen? No, he probably wouldn't. That touchdown probably doesn't happen at all. So there's one taken off the board. Um, And last but not least, you know, we just lacked discipline uh, as we're running through these various plays. You know, there's a flag football play they ran, which I love, where they threw it back to their receiver. Uh, Elam comes flying in, leaves his feet, trying to bat the ball rather than just make a tackle. But inexplicably, both Steiner and Bernie just vacate their spaces to go chase the ball on the throwback. That's just that's just stupid. The ball goes backwards and they just leave. You know, you don't need 25 guys going to the backfield, right? Have some awareness. Uh, not so great there. And then, of course, C.J. McWilliams, who's often maligned. We don't want to malign him, but he comes in on the very first play. They attack him. Lane Kiffin puts his hands up on a straight seam route. 
50-yard bomb. Why C.J. McWilliams on that play was covering him man-to-man with the safety robbing. It was a robber on purpose. The safety makes the right move. He goes to rob an underneath route, leaving McWilliams one-on-one with their NFL player, head-scratching. I don't really get it. So, you know, that's what went wrong. Hopefully on this podcast, we'll clean things up. Let's talk about the ways to improve because I do want to say that last year against Miami, we were absolutely abysmal. We were terrible on defense. We were terrible. We were. We looked lost, we, we rang the alarm bell, and it was really bad. Things got better. Unfortunately, we still did not play well when we needed to against Georgia to win the game. That cost us. But we did get better. So with all this being said, I do expect us to improve. This will not be how the defense is all year. What are some ways we can improve? Well, personnel obviously is going to help out if Sean Davis should be back, right? Um, Who knows about Brad Stewart? I think that will help a lot. I think playing against a team that is not going to abuse us (laughs) so openly like Ole Miss did and a team like South Carolina, get some more confidence and better reps, you know, not playing against a team with that kind of pace, right, will help. So one, I think just situationally that would be better. But uh, some of the, again, I think maybe just overly fearful of like we don't know what Lane Kiffin is going to do, right, really I think put us on our back foot and we were not playing well the entire game. So, I you know, I don't want to totally throw this game out, but also, as you said, I don't expect it to be um, just indicative of how the team is going to play the entire year. I'm interested to see how we respond. I expect us to play better in this next game, not just because South Carolina is not the same offensive team Ole Miss will be. Uh, even if we're playing a, a better offense, I think we would show up better the next week just because of all the stuff we got to watch on film this week. So I don't know. There, Almost everything. What do we need to improve? Schematically, positionally, uh, managing our personnel, everything. So I don't know. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm going to continue to leave scheme on there like I did all last year. So that's a, that's a standing one. We need to play the right personnel. And what does that mean for me? Trey Dean was excellent on film. In fact, he was by far our best run stopper. He was what you would want your strong safety to do fly downhill and hit somebody. And he was a benefit. He should get more snaps. If I am, the coaching staff right now, Steiner is on the bench unless he's the absolute last guy that can play safety for me and I'm down to no one else, which means I'm going to play my freshman. I'm going to play Torrance. I'm going to play Dean. I'm going to play Sean Davis. And I'm going to get those guys in the rotation and I'm just going to leave Steiner out. Obviously, we hope that Brad Stewart magically comes back. We never get any information from Dan Mullen on suspensions. No one ever knows. And then I'm looking at changing my offseason prep plan. This is too many games in a row now in the offseason, in the early go of things, that we just look terrible. Something is not right from a coaching element. We need to fix that. If I'm Dan Mullen, I'm sitting down saying, hey, look, next season, we got to do something different. This is just, this is not getting it done. We cannot keep doing this, especially in the future, Alan, as we begin to play more difficult opponents in our opener. We don't have a luxury uh, of always just getting a, a preseason game, so to speak. And then lastly, and this is one we mentioned last year too, but In the 3-4 defense, you have four linebackers. Uh, Two of them are going to be what you would consider to be your Sam or your Will linebacker. We call them a buck and a Will, but it's basically your strong side and weak side linebacker. So if you're on offense looking at defense, you have your two linebackers that you kind of always see on TV, the guys that are standing behind the linemen. And then you have one guy that's on the line, maybe the other one's on the line, or maybe he's guarding somebody in the slot, whatever the case may be. We're just not getting 
really quality reps or production out of those guys? And this is the philosophical question you and I raised. And we said, hey, we're going to run a 3-4 defense. If you want to run a 3-4 defense, it's very hard to find the right personnel to do so because you have to have big, strong guys on your defensive line. And then you have to have really athletic strong side and weak side guys. And I just don't see it right now, Alan. Of course, we're missing Jeremiah Moon, who's one of those guys. He's going to help a lot. But we're not getting a lot of production out of those areas. So to me, maybe you get a little more creative and you start swapping some guys around. You start running a different 3-4 front. One I'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about Mississippi State. Uh, But in general, I think something needs to be done with that. Otherwise, we're going to struggle. We have got to start getting production. Those are two players in the field that seemingly are just there. And we're going to have to do a little more with them than just kind of have them be there. And again, Moon last year did those things. Diabate did those things. So So, we have a lot of guys who can play a lot of positions, which is helpful. But if you have the guys who are not really excelling at anything, I mean, one, you know, if you're just the average fan, you're looking, you don't look like we have two linebackers, right? So because we're playing nickel, and the other, the buck linebacker is just rushing. I mean, almost all the time. So if you only have two quote unquote real linebackers on the field and the other one, so you got your middle and your David Reese, or in this case, Vinchal Miller, and the other guy is doing nothing for you, that's a real problem. Let's Any talk other a, thoughts. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, let's talk about what else made an impression. So there were some impressions that were positive. We talked about some of them, but who left you? As you think of defense, you think, hey, positively, I feel good about these guys moving forward. I think things will get better. But for these guys, I actually expect good things, big things. Like I said, I was impressed by TJ Slayton. And again, it's hard to be totally impressed with anybody in that kind of performance. Cox showed up. He flashed, certainly. I think he could still play better. Uh, It's funny, Gervin Dexter, I mean, he had the pick that fell right into his lap. He was only out there, I think, nine snaps, but he made his presence fell on most of those. You noticed him almost every time he was out there. I think the coaching staff will look at that and say, we need to get this guy on the field more if we can, if he understands what he's doing. So impressive debut by him. I mean, he looks the part for sure. He's a monster. So Bogle flashed a little bit. You know, you saw some things from him. Um, There's a lot of guys who in the pass rush looked okay. But again, you know, we were we were not in the right gaps all the time. So I don't know that I would single anybody out and go, this guy played just an A-plus game, other than maybe Ventrell Miller. Torrance at safety, like I said, he was out there. He didn't look bad. I don't know if he looked good, but he's a true freshman starting right away, basically starting because Sean Davis was only out there for like five plays. So in that sense, I think he held up well. Yeah, he was competent for, again, true freshman. You're setting the bar at the level. But, yeah, who who flashed? Torrance didn't flash, but you're just commending him for saying, I was playing high school, didn't get an offseason really. Right. Has to come in against a, a brilliant strategist, deal with some difficult stuff. And he really, on film, was rarely ever, like, in the wrong place. Which, again, you can't say the same thing for a guy who's gotten a lot of snaps in Steiner. So that's a positive Slayton was fantastic on film. They basically had to double him every single time he was in there, which again, on a 3-4 defense, a nose tackle like Slayton, he's supposed to always command a double team. If he doesn't, then you have the wrong guy there. Well, guess what, Alan? On our team, most other guys playing nose tackle were not commanding a double team, which really sets your defense up for a complete and utter disaster, which you alluded to. The mysterious disappearance of one Kyrie Campbell is real bad real bad for us on the other hand Dexter 
was what a five-star guy looks like. So if you're Tyler Rummery and you think five-stars don't exist and they're all conjured up in the fiction of Alabama and Georgia memories, and Dexter was, by the way, incorrectly listed as a four-star for a while, that's what an elite guy looks like. He looks like a, a, just a, a 30-year-old grown NFL player. He sure. was insane out there. He played nine snaps, put him out there for 30. I don't care if he doesn't know what he's doing. It doesn't matter. The guy is strong and high level. He needs to figure it out quickly, but he flashed. Cox flashed. There's a reason for hope, and we have seen, again, an overall higher level. And again, I think that on defense, things will improve. I think when the starters are there, things will improve. I think maybe the biggest thing here that made an impression on me, Alan, is something we already knew. We're just not there depth-wise yet. We're getting better, but we've had tremendous depth issues on defense. We've talked about it, and they're showing themselves already uh, in game one. All right, let's talk about special teams. We talk about Evan McPherson when we can. Just crushes a kick at a pretty important moment in the game. He's essentially automatic at this point. Uh, Jacob Finn, walk on. So we didn't get Jeremy Croshaw, our Australian. We got Jacob Finn, the senior walk on. He punted once, but it looked nice. I don't know how much you want to take away from that. I don't know if he's the weapon that we've had in the past, but certainly did his job. What do you think about that? That's a surprise. Certainly everyone had penciled in. Well, I guess, too, I, you know, if you are comfortable with that guy and he's the older guy and you're, you know, you're not sure what's going to happen, you would go with the more secure guy, even though the other guy might be a little more talented. Yeah, it's, it seems that way because Finn handled every single holding responsibility, which typically that's your punter's job. So I would not expect that to change anytime soon, which, again, is a surprise on the face of it. Finn is just a guy and obviously, you know, the much more heralded as you said, Alan, we finally have ourselves kind of an Australian rules punter uh, on the bench for now. Onside kick-wise, that was a great play by Old Miss. Excellent play design. Also equally terrible by us. So why do we have, I'm going to ask you, Alan, why did we have a return man on the field when we knew they were kicking an onside kick? I'm ready. That's a good question. Go for it. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Okay, that's good because that was terrible. So what did they do? Lane Smart. Smart guy. He's a very smart guy. They put three guys in the middle of the field. This was not hidden, by the way. In the NFL, sometimes they'll motion a guy in. So all of a sudden, surprise, we have three guys here. It was the kicker and two guys right there looking straight at us going, huh, they have two guys. We have two guys in the middle of the field. So they kick the ball. There goes three guys versus two guys. Of course, they win that battle. That looks pretty foolish. I'm pretty sure that will never happen again for the rest of this season. So lesson learned uh, for free, so to speak. And we did get Tony a punt returner. Yeah. And he really didn't get a chance to do yeah, anything. Yeah, I mean, their punter was impressive, actually, pushing Tony back. He had to run back for the ball quite a few times. I, You know, again, him as a kick returner, I'm like, whatever. But him as a punt returner, I, I'm I'm expecting we're going to see a big play from him at some point if he's as good at that as I think he can be. So yeah. I, I was encouraged to see that the coaches trust him enough to put him back there. Well, that's a win for us. That's what we wanted. He did it. He was down there every single time as punt returner. So we'll see how that emerges throughout the season. I fully suspect him to take one to the house sometime yes. this year. I think it's going to happen. Okay, final thoughts. Overall, I think this is a good debut, right? Let me let me like just widen it out here, right? We saw LSU get upset i mean really just run over by a mississippi state team that has a first year coach right we saw oklahoma go down we saw lots of crazy things happen i think getting a win is i don't want to downplay that and i love what we saw from our offense that may 
puts in the bigger picture, right? To come away with a win is really important. Lots of teams look terrible. Georgia, A&M, LSU. They all look very bad. We did not. What are your thoughts? Yeah, one game does not a season make. We used to say this every year. I'm going to get back to it. Uh, you need more than one game to find out what a team is about. Sure. One is extremely fluky. When we walk through our picks from last week, we'll get to illustrate how you cannot judge a football team on their previous week, especially early. So we're in the stage of gathering data and gathering info. So it was just like what we discussed. Stoked about the offense. Really excited about the philosophical change on the offense. Very concerned about the non-philosophical change in the defense. So right now, Alan, I see a great team, but I don't see a championship team. Things will have to change. Uh, like Dan Mullen changed to 2.0, things are going to have to change in our defense. We are not going to win, in my opinion, a national championship or even an SEC title with Grantham conducting defense the way he is right now. And, and we'll see if that opinion or take is correct or not. All right, we do coaching corner each and every week. Something we're doing different this year is you can send us your coaching corners. Last week was bizarre. There were so many crazy games, but there weren't actually really like a lot of obvious, wow, that was a weird decision. Of course, ours we already discussed, which was the usage of Emery. Other than that, all of our clock decisions and how we manage things was actually really, really good. In fact, we didn't mention this yet, Alan, but I thought that Coach Mullen's feel in the second half of kind of getting a little more time of possession in some of those drives, although we kicked field goals, um, was a good feel to kind of get the game Agreed. to a quicker end. And then maybe the one error, not maybe, but definitely the one error that we made was we did kick a field goal that did not extend us up to three scores. I would have rather seen us go for it there. Again, for me, it's always the rule of scores. So even if the field goal puts you up 16, I'm in the school that if our offense is as good as it is and it's fourth down and four, go for it, score a touchdown, put us up three scores instead. Right. We were in that. Well, okay, here, this is really interesting. Actually, let me go back to this. Uh, maybe I'll, I've uncovered a coaching corner here. We were in a really interesting spot when we kicked that long McPherson field goal where I think we're in like fourth and six at a whatever spot we were on the field. We're basically all of those options, like a punt is somewhat reasonable. I wouldn't have wanted us to punt it, but it's not out of the question. You can go for it or you can kick a field goal. Did you like that we kicked the field goal there? I did, actually, there. I like that. And McPherson's a beast and an NFL-caliber kicker. It was the field goal after that. We kicked basically a 28-yarder. Sure. And that was, to me, again, that did not put you up three scores. So all you did was put yourself up another conversion, which is fine. But I think with our offense, if you look at the odds of that, a touchdown there definitively ends the game. There is absolutely no way they'll come back and beat you. Whereas a field goal doesn't really do much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so I like to abide by that score rule. But that's a nice that's a nice point. When you have McPherson, I think oddly enough, a 55-yard field goal is like a really bizarre momentum boost in college. Mm -hmm. Like really bizarre. And it also signals to their coach that, oh no, if these guys even cross my 40, they'll score points. There's value in that. So I like I like that there. And I wouldn't mind if we'd gone for fourth and six, but... Also, with McPherson, it, if you don't like, if you don't have a play call that you like or not given what you want, kick the field goal. Yeah, take it. He's he's incredible. We said he's probably the best kicker that Florida's ever had, and he lived up to it right at right at the gate one. The other one comes from Barry Green. Thanks, Barry, for sending us this one. It was the crazy Texas at Texas Wild Tech game. game. It was tied 56-56 in the fourth quarter. Texas Tech had the ball for about 35 seconds. They had just missed a big play. There's 15 seconds left right now. They complete a very short pass. 
and they have one timeout left. There's about nine seconds left. They're on their own 40-yard line. They call timeout. So now it's fourth down and five from their own 40-yard line, and there are nine seconds left. Texas Tech, again, Texas Tech called a timeout. Texas had no timeouts. So you, Alan, you're the coach. You catch a pass. You get excited. You call a timeout. Then you think about it during the timeout, and rather than go for it, which again would be the reason why you called a timeout, you then choose to punt the ball and let the clock expire. Do you like this move? I, I mean, I, I think what normally you would do is just let it expire at that place on the field. But if you're a hyper aggressive team, maybe you're just thinking, "All right, we're gonna, whatever we're going to do, we're going to ca- we're going to call this timeout. And we're going to go for it." And I I wonder if that had been their plan, and then they second guessed it and said turning it over on fourth down right here is actually going to expose us more than we want. And it's just too wildly aggressive. So maybe it was actually a good move by them that caught themselves from being overly aggressive. But it, it is funny that you, the announcers goes, and that'll be the last play. Oh, and Texas tech called a timeout. So I don't know. I, I did fine with it. It didn't hurt them. I mean, I guess you could have a Michigan, Michigan state thing where you basically get your punt blocked and you lose the game on that. But I don't know. I, I don't mind the aggressive mindset that would allow that would have theoretically pushed them to call the timeout. Yeah. This is a really actually great coaching corner example here, Barry, because it's very nuanced on the face of it, but actually very complicated because in your excitement, you're probably thinking call timeout, call timeout. We want to try to score. And then when you get together during the timeout, you think, wait a minute, if we don't get this, if we get a sack or anything else happens, they have the ball like on our 32 yard line with a sack right? Incomplete pass, they have the ball on the 40-yard line. So they could try their own really long field goal, or they at least get a Hail Mary shot, where there could be pass interference or something else. So I think that thinking got the better of them. In the ideal world, I think you already know when you complete a five-yard pass, that's not enough for you. You go into the mindset thinking, if it's not a first down, I'm just going to let the clock run out. That's probably the optimal coaching move there, but things are chaotic. That game was insane. I think they made an initial mistake calling timeout, and then I think they correctly remedied it and punted the ball rather than take a, which would have been a potentially huge risk in not converting and actually getting Texas a a free shot without really any risk, I think, at the end of the game. Okay, Alan, it is winning season at our sponsor, MyBookie. And winning season, of course, means doubling your first deposit and winning big. Bet on all sports, including live betting. That was very popular at our household over the weekend. All sorts of live bets being thrown around, some good and some bad. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, and collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of futures bets. Or you can bet real games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Use the promo code GATORNATION and double your first deposit. New players will get up to $1,000 in free play. Sign up now as your winning season begins today. Visit mybookie.ag and enter the promo code GatorNation where you will get a 100% deposit match up to $1,000, effectively doubling your betting ability. And as usual, we remind you to gamble very responsibly. Yes, please. Entertainment only. Do not attempt to make a living off being a sports gambler. Just for fun. Unless you are as good as me at picking games this past weekend. Just kidding. I went a very respectable 7-4. and four. You went a decent 6-5. and five. That puts us to very close. Me 11-12 and 12 in the year. You 12-11. and 11. So, yes. Again, those early weeks... 
hilarious. I think moving forward, it's going to be interesting to see how this little mini competition goes, James. Of course, we'll run through the games here. Notre Dame at Wake Forest gets postponed. Didn't get to see that one. And then a real stunner. Not only from a result after the fact, but while it was happening, it was pretty wild. Kansas State, 27-point underdog, beats Oklahoma 38-35. Oklahoma's up in this game, and Kansas State comes roaring back and just handles them for the second year in a row. It's kind of crazy that they lost to them again. There was some insane stat that, like, top five teams with X amount of lead, was they were, like, 545-1 and one or something. <laughs> insane. Uh, that was nuts. I mean, Kansas State two years in a row beating Oklahoma, which again, Oklahoma prone, even when Bob Stoops was there and now Lincoln Riley to really head scratching losses. And by the way, chalk this up to the, hey, you're not the team you were in week one because Kansas State got handled by Arkansas State. And then they Crazy. go and they beat Oklahoma, who was handling them. So again, college football is zany. You can never just look at your schedule and say automatic win. Yeah, I mean, for Oklahoma, too, this has got to basically put just a huge damper on your season because you're looking at, all right, if we roll through the season undefeated, we're going to make the playoff. The Big 12 looks like it's down. Then you lose to a team that lost to a Sunbelt team. Uh, I don't want to totally bury the Big 12 because who knows what's going to happen in this kind of crazy COVID season, but they're in dire straits. All right, good win by Auburn. They down... Kentucky 13 or 29 to 13. This was a close game for a long time and Auburn capitalizes late. Yeah. Kentucky proving obviously under Mark Stoops that they're a tougher out, but still lacking what they need, I think to win these games consistently. But again, this is not just a Kentucky team. That's going to let you pound them. You're going to have to earn it. I thought Auburn looked pretty competent, uh, but the same kind of struggles that drive our friend Chris Musgrove crazy are, crazy are still there uh, offensively for sure. But either way, that's a good win out of the gate for Auburn. And I think for the players that Auburn lost on defense for them to hold Kentucky as they did, I think it's got to be encouraging for them moving forward. Wow, I can't believe I'm reading this score right now. Mississippi State beats LSU 44-34. to 34. I mean, I, I was intrigued by Mississippi State. I would never have predicted this result. Yeah, good for you. Alan picked Mississippi State spread-wise. I picked LSU. And shame on me. I'm like the biggest Mike Leach fan. I you mean, are. I dogged Tennessee when they didn't take him. I've talked about how much I love the air raid. I'm like a champion of that style of offense, although not the way Mike Leach runs it all the way, per se. And I'm not at all a believer in it, Orgeron. I've said this year that LSU is going the wrong direction. What was I thinking, Alan? What the heck was I doing I don't know. That was foolish of me to take LSU in the 19 points. I, I, I feel foolish. I'm sorry to all of you who listened, but that was a wildly fun and entertaining game. So good. I'm so excited to have Mike Leach in the SEC. His post-game press conference was amazing. The, the plays that he called were amazing. Costello transferring from Stanford and his previous career high was like 370 yards, throwing for 623 yards against LSU, which were like all records. Mike SEC Leach record in his first game. breaks all these records in the first game, and that's what the Air Raid does. They they ran the ball for eight total yards, I think, which is insane. <laughs> and maybe most importantly, Alan, although LSU is down a lot of talent, LSU has Bo Pelini at the helm, who was once a very respected coordinator. Uh, I think Bo Pelini for me fits in the category of little a little outmatched these days against spread offenses. And that's a big statement to make for a guy who's been around football a long time. LSU employed, I think, an extremely foolish game plan 
Uh, they're switching Obviously. from the four three to the three. I mean, from the three four to the four three, which is right. a tough transition. The three four is much better suited to stop the spread, which is why teams run it. And they lost Stingley, their best corner, which really messed him up. You don't want to do that. But they bullheadedly, Allen, played a ton of man and basically didn't come out of it. Mississippi State was running the same mesh route that Mike Leach loves that you can watch online videos of. He will give you his playbook. He basically over. runs the same plays anyway. Yeah, and the Air Raid does that, and I'm all about it. Like You've heard me say football is a theory game where you can always put the defense in the wrong spot. You don't have to have 100 plays. But the fact of the matter is there are ways to slow that down, and LSU just got stuck in an absolute buzzsaw and it was it was magical i mean what mississippi state was doing on the road and lsd was magical and, and maybe alan's my last comment here there's definitely a major thing to take into consideration this year and that is that teams that would be feeling a lot of pressure on the road don't have that same pressure they are playing yeah, loose true. and fancy free because a hundred thousand people bearing down on you you feel those momentum shifts no such thing exists right now in college football it's not the same way so mississippi state played like they were playing a scrimmage bombing the ball in the fourth quarter over and over and over again but remarkable result welcome to the sec again mike leach and a guy who's getting a lot of hype miles brennan I mean, a word i would use to describe him was kind of pedestrian at best that's being potentially kind i feel okay, like okay there you go we mentioned this game already <laughs> freaking crazy game can't believe that texas both won this game and how they won it Overtime, beat the Red Raiders 63-56. to 56. I mean, Texas Tech was up, I think, like 15 with like three minutes left, and they, they end up losing this game. Inexplicable loss for them. They, they did the old downward hook em horns <laughs> way too early. Don't do that. Wait until the end. Just don't do it. Bad, bad look for Texas. This, for me, Allen, officially eliminates the Big 12 from the playoff. I think with Oklahoma okay. losing and with Texas just struggling mightily, to a Texas Tech team that barely beat Houston Baptist uh, before. And again, don't count a team out based upon what they do one week to the next. Uh, but either way, even if Texas were to go undefeated, which I think is probably not going to happen based upon what we just saw in their defense, the Big 12 will not have a rep in the playoffs. Yeah, unless every other team is eliminated because of COVID or whatever. So West Virginia at number 15, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State wins. Fairly convincingly, 27-13. This is a good win for them, bouncing back. Again, don't judge a team based on their first week, which I said. I said, hey, you know what? I have faith in Mike Gundy out there at Oklahoma State. He wins 10 games a lot. He'll get the ship right. They played much, much better. This team is still not a, a really a, a very good football team at all uh, in, in the scheme of things. They're certainly not worthy of being ranked 15th, and that will fall down as more schools, of course, enter back in. All right, Cincinnati, a good win. They beat Army 24-10. This was a good game. This tells me I took Army on a flyer. Army is actually good, is what this game tells me, because Cincinnati's a good football team. And although they wind up you know, not getting the spread cover, it was a good, close, competitive game. And so good for Army. Cincy, going to be one of those teams to watch. Uh, they're, they're kind of, in my opinion, right there with BYU. And then obviously the dreaded UCF. UCF plays Cincy, but it's very possible that you have two of those teams undefeated. They're not going to make the playoff, but they're going to be crowing about it. So keep an eye on Cincy, BYU, and UCF. So Georgia, <laughs> I believe down 7-5 to five at halftime to the mighty Arkansas Razorbacks. end up pulling out 37-10. to 10. Dwan Mathis looked rather terrible. 
And Georgia brings in their uh, former walk-on backup to lead them to victory. This is something that I mentioned watching this game live that drives me crazy. In my opinion, the quarterback position is a distributor and decision maker first and foremost. It's a bonus if you get a guy who can run. That's a bonus. That's that's a huge. Don't take that away from that guy. That is helpful. That's an important skill set. But if you have a guy who is completely lost and poor Mathis had, I don't think he knew what he was doing on the field. I don't think he knew where his receivers were. I don't think he knew what his plays were. That's as lost as I have seen a college quarterback debut in a long time. And they let that guy flounder out there to the point to where the game was starting to hang in the balance. Right. But thankfully for them, they're playing a horrific Arkansas team. And a Felipe Franks who had the most Felipe Franks stat line you've ever seen. Uh, go look it up. It's everything he does. That they were able to put in the guy who could just get the ball to all their five-star athletes, and they crushed them. And again, Tyler Emery, I'm picking on you a lot in this podcast. There's a reason why those guys are five stars. Because they can still do that. You can take an unheralded walk-on distributor and just, hey, find a way to get that guy the ball somehow. And if you do, we will destroy a team. Which is what they still did. But very sketchy debut for them. And Alan, you mentioned pre-show today. Maybe rather conveniently that JT Daniels just got cleared. I hate to break it to all of you Gator fans, but JT Daniels is an excellent quarterback. And if he stays healthy, the Georgia team that you saw on Saturday, you will never see again. They are going to get better and better and better. And this will be a very good football team. So don't think, oh, look at that. We're better than them right now. This is not, this is not the game we'll be playing them in November. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch their evolution. Hopefully it stays rather flat. Number two, Bama. Up big early against Missouri, but fails to cover, and they win 38-19. This is a classic Bama game. We all took Missouri live betting in the third quarter because we knew that Bama would shut themselves down. They looked amazing. They looked excellent. Mac Jones looked great. Classic Nick Saban preparation. They tackled well. They played well. They were ready to roll. Uh, Excellent debut by them. They don't have the same firepower they've had in previous years, but this is going to be a very competent football team. A team that did not look as competent. Texas A&M barely beats a pretty bad Vandy team, 17 to 12. So I really like Jimbo Fisher, but I got to tell you, if I were doing an A&M podcast, I would have been banging the drum each and every week on the why is Kellen Mond still playing quarterback there? He is the reason why this is happening to them. He is absolutely terrible. He's not a quarterback. And every year you hear the same thing. Kellen Mond has taken all these huge steps. Kellen Mond is a different guy. He's the same guy. You want to know why? He's not accurate. You can't be a quarterback, Allen, if you can't be accurate. I don't know what it's going to take for Jimbo Fisher to put somebody, anybody else in there. But he's holding his team back, and and hopefully he won't make any changes before we play them because Kellen Mond, I think, will be somebody we would like to see. Great point. Florida State gets absolutely demolished by Miami 52-10. The game wasn't even this close. It was not. Florida State's horrific. If you want to destroy your program in less than two years, <laughs> hire Willie Taggart. I mean, wow. Remarkable. Honestly, it's remarkable how horrific he has made that team so quickly. Hard to understand. And on the other side, we've been mentioning this. It's very clear to me now that Manny Diaz will, in fact, be uh, someone to to be reckoned with at Miami. If for no other reason, then he gets to play in the ACC. Right. And you don't have to put out an SEC level team every year. He's going to start recruiting the area around Miami, which is already happening. He's going to start getting a top 10 class every single year. And he's going to play in the ACC. 
So safe to say, if you're a Gator fan, maybe Florida State's down for a while. We'll see what happens with them. But Miami is definitely ascending. I believe this is real. Are they a contender this year? No, I don't think they are. But they are absolutely, truthfully, on a on a real upswing. Yeah, and it's interesting. Someone on Twitter, maybe Andy Staples, said something like, you know, the ACC hasn't seen this Auburn-style death by a thousand cuts offense where they run the same play at you with slight variations until they just flummox you. And so they might rack up a lot of yards in the ACC this year. Okay, numbers of 16 Tennessee just escapes at the end due to a kooky punt that ricochets off a South Carolina player. They win 31-27. I don't both teams looked eh, I don't know. We'll talk about South Carolina a lot next. But Tennessee gets the win and I think that's probably what's most important to them. Yeah, these two teams are similar as you mentioned and the question is which direction are they going? I asked the question last week. If you're Will Muschamp, this should be a game that you need to win. Yeah. Because you've been there much longer than Pruitt has been, and your teams are more or less the same. And he didn't again. And and although you can't just point to like a Will Muschamp moment, you know you just you just can't. He's just not getting it done over there. So keep an eye on them. Of course, they're our next opponent. We'll cover them in detail. But Tennessee fans happy to be one and zero. I checked out kind of how they felt about it, and and of course they're believing they can really grow as the season goes on. So they're pretty excited. South Carolina fans, I think, rightfully look at their schedule and say this was not going to be a good year for us anyway. Okay, James, let me thank a few of our OG patrons. Please Got, do so. Yeah, these from are, the beginning. This is from the beginning. People who jumped on board supporting the Gator Nation Football Podcast. We love these guys. Number one, actually first in order. He calls himself the first fan. I guess he has the right to do that. One Tyler Rummery, first on the list. Jeffrey Shaw, Jason Thies. Sorry about that, Jason. Jason Landry, Micah Pounders, Chris Borales, Lon Stafford. External tangents. Love that. Hello. Brian Sumner, one Josh Duty, Diego Rivera, Matthew Brigman, Tyler Pierce, Josh Haas. Hostetler. Josh Hostetler. Yeah, let's yeah. go, Haas. Matthew Fry, Liam White, Ian McFetridge, Joel Whitehead. Hey, Maddie. Uh, Mike Davis, close personal friend of mine. What's up, dude? In our fantasy league. Adam Ridenauer. Hey, buddy. Craig Anderson, Evan Davis, Keith Copenhaver, and just Esteban. I love, love it. it. Great job name. reading those uh, names. Yeah, and so obviously some of you guys, not just because we've seen you on the Patreon list for a long time, but Love corresponding with you guys on, you know, Facebook Messenger, which James is great about responding to. And uh, yeah, very appreciative of you guys for being with us from the beginning. Yeah, and it's fun too. It's a mix of friends, right? Tyler and I have been friends since I was, you know, eight years old. And then Jason Landry was a college roommate. And then Josh Judy is one of our good buddies here. Uh, and then Josh Hostetler, I played basketball with in college. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then obviously you've got your friends there too. But then also for those of you that, you know, I don't know personally, exactly. I've it's got so cool. to know through messaging and, and and kind of talking with. And it's awesome. It's one of the things we like the most about this show. And of course, we're just so thankful for you guys supporting us now for, you know, three plus years. Okay, let's now turn our attention to the Gamecocks of South Carolina. They are, of course, 0-1. And number three, UF. Want to know, the, the line is currently 18 and a half. Before we just get into the specifics of all the South Carolina stuff, uh, I think the question that I'm asking is, do you have any fear of South Carolina? 
I respect every opponent that we play as a fan of college football. Because if you watch the games last weekend, very true, crazy things happen. Uh, and then, and then I watch film, and then I decide how do I feel about this team. I think as a Gator fan right now, I wanna, I want your minds to think about this. Almost all of us, including myself, are going to overvalue our offense. If that's possible, I assure you that you're doing it. We're unstoppable. No one can ever stop us. We're incredible. Uh, which a large part of that will be true. But like we mentioned, Old Miss will be maybe the worst defense we face all year long. Again, not taking anything away from our offense. South Carolina, much more competent on defense. On offense, they're kind of typical South Carolina. So am I afraid? No. This should be a, a handy win for us. But in the SEC, what if Kyle Trask goes down? What if Kyle Trask gets COVID? What if we lose two or three more players? What if Brad Stewart doesn't come back? It's always tenuous. And that's yeah. why, and this is the comment I want to make, Alan, that's why an all-SEC schedule is so awesome. Is I'm not going to have a single game this season where it's like, we will guarantee to win this game. Are we likely to win? Yes. Am I afraid? No. But do I recognize that we could actually lose this game? Is there a way to lose? Sure. We could lose this football game. It is possible. So therefore, I have a healthy respect that we are playing an opponent that could beat us. Right. That's a great way to say that. I mean, I think, interestingly, Ole Miss scared me more than South Carolina. And South Carolina theoretically could beat Ole Miss. I don't know if that would be true. Actually, you know, we'll see with a couple more weeks of information. But they're not a team that's obviously flashy. They don't, like, put the fear of God in you. But they are a somewhat talented team. They can be functional at times, especially uh, if they get their kind of ducks in a row. I you could screw around and lose to them for sure. They're not Vanderbilt when Vanderbilt's at their lowest. So I think I, they're not a team that inspires fear, but they are capable of winning. Uh, we have almost lost to them a couple times in the last few years where we had to come back and do certain things. I and mean, we can think about the Felipe Franks shushing the crowd game. So they are capable. Um, of course, Florida won 38-27. You can see the score there. Last year it was fairly close, so take rainy, sloggy. Game yes, yes, where not, things were optimal for them to keep that close, but it was a close game. Yes. So Will Muschamp entering into his fifth year, he is at a very Will Muschampian twenty six and twenty six. I think he'll continue to alternate wins and losses until the end of time. They return thirteen starters, seven on offense, six on defense. 73% returning production out of those guys. So interesting from them, you know, despite not returning a lot of starters, a decent amount of production returning. Um, their five-year recruiting talent composite range is 21st. A couple five-stars in there, 24 four-stars. UF eighth, four five-stars, and 45 four-stars. So UF definitely a more talented team. Their coaching staff, Mike Bobo, you would probably recognize that name, former Georgia OC, was the head coach at Colorado State up until very recently. Defensive coordinator, also very familiar to us, Traveris Robinson, was at UF. He's been there for four years. So, James, as you're watching the USC offense, as we look at this game, they've got a new coordinator, right? Theoretically different, but functionally, are they any different on offense? They're actually very different. Uh, in fact, 
they're not the same really even remotely at all. Uh, so Mike Bobo, once upon a time, if you're a Gator fan who's been around for a while, you think of Mike Bobo, you think of running the ball a lot, a lot of pro-style power running. That is not the Mike Bobo of 2020. He has modified himself. He's adopted a lot of the the spread principles while still maintaining a pro-style running game. They're basically 55% pass, 45% run. And right now they're, they're much better, uh, I would say, at really passing the ball than they are running the ball, at least based on one game and probably based upon their talent and kind of where they're projecting to be. Bobo himself is a formation diverse guy, meaning he'll run any type of formation under center shotgun, whatever the case may be. He also prefers the matchup passing game, which is a much more old school version of football. Hey, if this guy's my good guy, I'm going to target him heavily and build plays for him. Versus again, the school of thought I come from, which is I'm going to run the best play for the situation and throw the ball to the guy that's going to be most open based upon the scheme. He's, I'm going to throw the ball to this guy kind of guy. Uh, probably most importantly, Alan, they brought with with him from Colorado State a graduate transfer quarterback, Colin Hill. And he won the job. And he won the job. And he is a pocket passer. He does not really have any mobility to speak of. They will kind of use him on RPOs just to do it, but he's not going to run away from anyone. So he's going to be, a, a hopefully for them, a higher-level decision-making kind of guy. And he's familiar with Bobo's offense, uh, which relies pretty heavily on safe and efficient passes. And so if we're looking for what is USC going to do, Alan, they, like us, like to run 11 personnel. But 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end, three receivers, can be employed very differently. And they employ it very, very differently than we do. So they love to run screens. One of the big things with Mike Bobo is he loves to run bubble screens. He loves to run tunnel screens. He likes to run all sorts of screens to take advantage of teams pressuring them. And much like many Georgia coordinators, he likes to score big on play action, which is sort of a staple of Georgia for the past 20 years. They're going to try to hit their home runs on play action, uh, and they're going to target. Who are they going to target? Who are they heavily going to target? Shai Smith. So Shay Smith. Is it Shay? She. She. We should know this. He's been there forever. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you know this, send us a phonetic pronunciation. But it's SHI Smith. And he had 14 targets first game against Tennessee. He caught 10 of those for 140 yards and a touchdown. He does have 127 receptions while at South Carolina. So he is the guy. All the rest of the receivers, while one is pretty talented, are entirely unproven. So I think it's safe to say that they're going to feature him heavily. And, oh, guess what, Alan? If you're wondering where does he play, he plays in the slot, which is exactly where Elijah Moore plays. So a very immediate chance at redemption for the Gators. They will have to attempt to alleviate pressures from Florida D-line using those screens because they gave up quite a few sacks against Tennessee. They were heavily pressured all game long. Florida's front seven, in theory, is more talented than Tennessee's, but they're not that different. So we should be able to get a similar amount of pressure to what Tennessee got. Yeah, I they're not going to try to, I think, wow you offensively, but they're going to try to be efficient and productive. So if you're thinking Ole Miss, maybe just not quite the opposite of them, but you're not expecting much pace or tempo out of them, are you? No, and that's probably the best news for us. Is in fact, they're the opposite of tempo. They are a time-of-possession team. They value that. They're not unlike Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen will run a little faster than they will, but Dan himself is still a time-of-possession guy. I would view him in that vein. They're looking to get 30 to 35 minutes of possession. 
Um, and that's what they're going to lean towards doing. That will help us get lined up for sure. And that's something we talked you know, long about with regards to the Old Miss game that really got us. So this is a different look entirely from Old Miss, although they're still running spread concepts. Okay, let's talk about the South Carolina defense. Uh, you know, despite having Will Muschamp as their head coach, they've been alternating between being efficient to pretty underwhelming at defense, you know, throughout his time there. What are they looking like this year to you? Well, on defense, they're talented. In fact, most people that follow South Carolina think this is the most talented defense that they've had. It's not a perfect defense. They have some issues in certain areas. They have a promising but young defensive line or young being inexperienced. Their linebackers are very solid. They have two corners they really, really like, but they have some question marks at safety. So all in all, what does that look like? It's a kind of middling defense with upside that I think they expect to be pretty good by the end of the season. Catching South Carolina right now is actually a really good thing, I think, for us in general. Uh, They were, or are, entering this game first in third down defense. Tennessee was one for 10 on third down. Right. And so they really struggled. Garantano looked really bad against them, and I think that's probably mostly a function of Garantano, but maybe a little bit for them as well. Yeah. Garantanamo Bay or whatever yeah. we like to call Guarantanamo them. But, but yeah, that's not all them. But so far, they're feeling pretty good about themselves on third down. They did some things well, some other things not so well. What does USC like to do on defense? Again, if you've been a fan of the podcast, this is actually rather unchanged, but there will be something interesting to examine. Coming from the NFL, Robinson prefers to play a lot of man, which I love. The problem with South Carolina is they tend not to have quite enough talent or when they did like last year, their whole secondary was injured. So we faced them last year when they had a, just dudes playing. This year, they're in a better scenario. They like to run cover zero, cover one, and cover three primarily. They are not going to wind up doing a lot of exotic things in the back end of their coverage. Uh, they will blitz. They will bring pressure. They try to stay very sound, and they teach their guys to be able to cover. And that is, in fact, a good way to stop offenses like our own. Uh, however, they actually had a lot of success against us last year playing cover four. They played it for five snaps. We did not perform well. Cover four is when you're going to wind up having your corners and your safeties kind of keep everything in front of them. Auburn employed the same strategy against us in the swamp last year. If you are disciplined and you're smart, you can take advantage of that. In fact, this is what I alluded to earlier as being the other best way to stop a spread team. I know if you're if you're going to Google like quarters coverage stopping spread, you can find all sorts of articles on what this looks like, but it is a viable way to try to slow down a very explosive team like ours. It allows you to double Kyle puts relatively easily. Right, it makes you work for everything that you're going to do. It does. It has weaknesses, of course. There are plenty of spots underneath the coverage that you can hit, and it tends to struggle against a run, which is why it's hard to use. Uh, but if I were them, I would absolutely have quite a few cover four packages because Trask has not seen it very often. It does hopefully limit us scoring on you very quickly, and it does allow you to double Somebody while being weak in the run, but forcing Florida to run in a way I would argue is kind of a win for the defense. Make Trask get frustrated, yes. make him get bored. So I'm not sure if they're going to go in that direction. Will Muschamp is a very gifted defensive coordinator. He is very creative. It would not surprise me if they tried something very different than what they tried last year and what they just saw Old Miss try. So this should be a really interesting chess match. So when we're on offense, as we're looking to attack either the quarters or I don't know what they, what else they might try to do, whether with man or anything else. Is it very different than what we saw us try to do against Ole Miss? 
I think in general, my personal offensive philosophy is is always the same. You just take what the defense gives you. If you're running a really good balanced attack, balanced meaning you can run and you can pass, not that you're going to run and pass 50-50, then whatever the defense does, you just do the opposite. If they take away your run, you pass. If they take away your pass, you run. I think the same thing has to be true here. So if I'm coaching Trask and the team, I'm saying, look, here's our game plan. Here's some things we think we can exploit against their defense. Uh, and in general, if they come out pass heavy defensively, then we're going to run the ball in here. So we're going to feel comfortable with, and we're not going to get frustrated gaining five, six yards and being calm. And if they come out aggressively playing man and making us pass over the top, then here's what we're going to do for that. So I think you prepare your team to do either or tactically, I think we're going to try to create matchups against their safeties, their linebackers, and especially their nickelback. Again, their two corners are very solid, very comfortable playing man. A major NFL style of defense, Allen, is to leave your corners just playing man and zone your other players. They will do that. I think we should expect that so we can create the matchups we want by moving people around pre-snap, by isolating uh, you know, Kyle Pitts on a linebacker, on a safety. And whenever we get those opportunities, we should take shots uh, tactic on there. I think Dan is going to, is going to script things, you know, especially for that. And then lastly, we should again, be able to run the ball in South Carolina while maybe not, you know, for 250 yards, we should expect to be able to competently run the football at a level that allows us to gain yardage. I would not expect us like last year where we said, Hey, look, just throw it every single play to be stuck being one dimensional. So utilize that where you can, especially if they're loading up against the pass. And special teams, I think Florida's going to have the edge over most teams with Evan McPherson and a competent punt game. Anything that you're looking for from them? Well, they've got a kicker that's pretty decent. He's a veteran. So unlike Old Miss, which we highlighted, their yeah. kicker being an issue, they missed a kick. I don't see South Carolina being in a scenario where they're going to have to go forward on fourth downs in bizarre situations. That's kind of what we look for for special teams. Outside of that, both punting scenarios for both teams are sort of unknown. We certainly have the edge when it comes to a returner. They don't have a, and South Carolina tends to have guys like that, but they don't have a, man, look at this guy. I really fear him. Right. The guy they just put in the NFL who I'm blanking on, the giant yes. receiver who was doing everything for them last year. Um, Correct. Gone. And so. they've, they've had those guys. Right. And there's not one that's emerged yet. And then finally, on the flip side, Alan, although we, we sort of accidentally missed over this, but we're here, we're back. On uh, defensively, what should Florida do to counter their offense? Well, one, we should expect to be able to generate pressure with just our front three, or as you mentioned, our fourth. If we have our buck linebacker just rushing, we should be able to expect to get base pressure, which allows us to essentially play a little safer. These tend to be games that Grantham does pretty well in because we can stay in our base nickel package. We don't have to wind up getting spread all over the field. South Carolina is prone to making mistakes of their own because they give up those pressures. So you can allow for them to gather some yardage, kind of expecting they won't be able to make it all the way down the field. So what am I saying here? In general, the game plan is probably going to be conservative in coverage and then tactically aggressive when we get them in a down in distances that we like. Uh, if you're new to the show, I really approve of general aggression all the time on defense. I like to force the issue. What I'm telling you here is what I think we're going to do. Again, if it were me, I, I think I'd, I'd take it to them more than this. Uh, but I expect us to be a little more conservative uh, looking for that. And obviously, if it's me, I am definitely taking away their best wide receiver, Smith. I'm going to double him. I'm not even going to, for a second, let Marco Wilson or anyone else just try to cover him one-on-one. -on -one. not going to do it. I'm going to make them prove they can beat me 
with somebody else. I see no reason to do anything other than that. In Grantham's past, we don't do that kind of stuff. So we'll keep an eye on how much he wants to employ a, a sort of you know heavy double on someone more the Belichick style. And lastly, I picked up on film that Colin Hill really prefers to throw the ball between the hashes. So his first read is almost always in between those hashes. He likes to throw middle routes. They love to throw the slant route. I'm sure we will be prepping how we're going to wind up carting their slant route. They try to spread you out so you can't have a linebacker jump that route, but that's definitely his preferred route. So it's sort of like slant, slant, dig, dig, hitch in the middle, and then eventually they'll try to play action you into something deep. But he generally does not like to throw the ball outside of the numbers. So what does all that mean? This is very different than what Old Miss did, but also it's very similar in a different facet. Old Miss gouged us in the middle of the field, right? In between the hash marks, they just killed us. So this is nice. If I'm a defensive coordinator, I like this matchup. It's an immediate chance for me to work with my team from film, show them who we're playing this week, and try to correct what we're doing while immediately seeing it again on Saturday. So it's like back-to-back school days where you're going to get the same kind of idea. Hey, they want to attack the middle. They want to generate openings here. Your same players that struggled are going to be featured in this game. It's probably going to be a quiet game uh, you know, for Kyrie Elam and for, for Kim Burrow and Hill. Probably not going to be a lot of stuff going on for them. So we're going to see how well the middle of our defense shores themselves up in this one. Okay, penalties roughly equal. Turnover margin favors the Gators, although it's early, not a lot of data points there. Injury, COVID, suspensions, other things. Uh, Jeremiah Moon expected back. Um, no real injuries from this game, from the first Ole Miss game. So that's good news for the team. I don't think we, as of this recording, have any information on Campbell or Stewart or even James Houston, who is, you know, not in the game last week, who was expected to be. Let's say Brunson got some snaps. So I, who knows about him, whether he plays in this game or not. Okay, James, let's hear your keys to the game. So I think for this game, it's going to wind up being, are we able to prevent them from running the football? If we are, we're going to get plenty of pressures. We're not going to have a problem keeping them contained and getting off the field. Of course, I could mention the ever so obvious, like we really struggle in third down situations. But we're, we're provided with a, I'm going to call this like a mid-level challenge for Grantham because Hill is a veteran quarterback. He is smart. He has run a pass primary attack. You heard the stat early in the show that Grantham has struggled mightily against competent quarterbacks. I will put Hill in the average competent quarterback category. He's fine. He's serviceable. He's not a lot of the guys we faced in the SEC that are like really inexperienced or just are going to get taken advantage of. So he will he will provide something for Grantham to have to defeat. So one of my basic keys is going to be that we need to hold them to a very average below 50% on third down, which is not asking for a lot. That shows you how much margin I think we have for error to still win this game that we could allow them to get even higher than that and probably win but I think as long as we hold them Alan to below 50% uh, on third down and then we we win the running game battle I think this will be a rather straightforward win for us Uh, if either we don't win the running battle or that number gets high now you start wind up getting into some interesting situations because they will they will Alan try to shorten the game as much as possible they will play an Auburn-like strategy against us as best they can. And if they can do that, then you wind up getting yourself into maybe a, a, 
a tighter game in the second half. Yeah, this is going to be interesting to see how we respond defensively. Uh, we need a much better game from our linebackers and our safeties. I think that's no secret. Um, I would like to see us tighten up a lot of our you know, gaps in terms of how our defensive line is rushing the passer and holding up against the run. So there's a stat that's yards per play, right? Uh, which is, I think, very instructive. Ole Miss had, I think, roughly 6.3 trillion yards per play. They were crushing us. Uh, our defense is not designed to hold up to that aggressive of an attack. I don't think South Carolina is going to score a ton, but if they are ripping off bigger plays over the middle of the field, like you said, that's going to be really tough for us to perform like we want to perform and win the game as easily as we want to win the game. So I think third down percentage, that's interesting that you said that. I think another way to look at that is their yards per play. Um, do we hold that to a respectable amount? Um, and then offensively, I, th- this game feels like it's set up for us to do fairly well. I, I think we're going to move the ball a lot. And I think for us, actually, I was thinking about our third down percentage, right? I think they're going to make us execute on some third downs because if they do go into some shell into some quarters and some places where they're making us earn yards, are we patient or do we execute when we have younger guys on the field? Are they making the right play? Uh, I could see us getting into trouble if we are moving the ball, but we're settling for long field goals or we're punting in situations where we'd rather go for it. So, uh, and, and some of that is maybe going to be like, how much pressure do we allow? So we're looking for our third down percentage from my perspective, our third down percentage on offense. I like that. I think that's, I think that's going to factor in heavily, which we were fantastic last week and we were even better last week, Alan at second and long, Mm -hmm. which we faced several times at getting into a good third down situation. All right. I went first last week. It's your turn to go first this week. What is your score prediction? So this is funny. I, I'm tempted to pick a closer game just from, I don't know the way South Carolina is going to try to keep this game close but I don't think they're going to be able to. I'm going to pick predict a fairly large margin here. I'm going to go 40 to 13. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to go 52 to 23. Okay, so like a late score or is this a little closer for longer? No, I think we're going to I think we're going to just sort of put it on them consistently. I do. Uh, and I think I'm going to lean. This game's going to tell me a lot. So we mentioned one game is not enough. I think after this game I'm going to hone in where we'll be score-wise. In fact, you and I tend to be pretty good when the season goes on at kind of getting the right points allowed points for. I'm leaning towards the side of thinking, I think we're going to wind up scoring 45-plus on a lot of these SEC teams that don't have a pass rush. South Carolina's is better, but it's still promising and up-and-coming, not proven and capable. And that's why I think if you can't, I just don't see it, Alan. If you can't pass rush Kyle Trask, I don't think you can stop them. Agreed. So we're going to bank on that. We're going to find out. Well, we're gonna if see. we can't get them on off the field on third down, then the game shrinks. And, and that's we just don't have enough possessions to get to like 50 points. Right. And that's what makes it interesting. So we're both hinging on that. So we'll see how this goes. I like the fact that we have a very different score, but yet both of us have a cover on yeah. the 18 and a half. Uh, this line opened at 22 and a half, I think, and probably shrunk to 18 and a half, uh, which tells you the public is not a believer yet and how much better we are than South Carolina. We will find out just how much better we are. Speaking of better, 
we have Manscaped. Again, if you are under the age of whatever age, you should not be thinking about these things. Please pause your podcast. Now, uh, Gator Nation Football Podcast is, of course, brought to you also by Manscaped, who is the best in the men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technological developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. That's why Manscaped has redesigned their electric trimmer. It is conveniently named the Lawnmower 3.0. There was a 1.2 and now 3.0. They spent 18 months perfecting this particular trimmer. It's long-lasting, has a chargeable battery, it is waterproof, and it's plastic. That's the feature, so no worries about Nick's cuts and otherwise. Take care of what is most important to you. Right now, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code GOGATERS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use the code GOGATERS20. Alan, the slate, Let's do it. as we now call it. The, the games slate. that are coming up this weekend, and there are some good ones. All right, let's start off in the Big 12. TCU at number nine still, Texas. Texas yeah, which favorite. is, again, showing you something. Texas still number nine. Texas favored by 13, Alan? 13? TCU's 0-1, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a feel for what this TCU team is ultimately going to be able to accomplish. But Texas, I don't know. The, favoring them after they just went to the wire against Texas Tech, I don't know. What do you got in this one? I'm going to take Texas with a very unorthodox thought here. They just survived. It's like when you did something wrong, but you get bailed out with no consequences and you like have new life and you feel like, I'm never going to do that again. I'm so excited about my second life. <laughs> That Texas is going to buckle down and take this gift they have and cover the spread. Man, I this does feel like a game that Texas can win. And if they can win, then I think they can win by 13. But that number is just high enough. I'm going to, I'm going to take TCU. I, I feel like I'm going to regret that, though. All right, Missouri, fresh off a of cover, versus number 21, Tennessee. Tennessee favored by 10.5. Yeah, Missouri looked uh, kind of competent for a team that got crushed by Alabama. Uh, I mean, they didn't; they got killed. But Tennessee is not Alabama. This this is brutal to me. I would not bet this game at all. Ten and a half for any any Tennessee team feels oh, yeah. way too high. And I'm going to go with my gut reaction to that and say that although I really don't like Missouri's team, I just look at it and think that just seems like too much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go Missouri here. I'm gonna go Missouri as well. Tennessee doesn't feel like they're in a place where they're going to be covering double-digit spreads. Maybe they will. I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but I'm not comfortable taking them there. Number 13, A&M at number two, Bama. Bama only favored by 17. Yeah, Bama's getting a lot of low Vegas lines at the open, and you just had A&M struggle mightily. This is, of course, because A&M has played Bama very, very well. That's true. Multiple times now, and they expect that to continue. I don't know what to do with this one, but my gut reaction on this one says Bama. Again, not comfortable with it, so I'm going to go Bama. I'm going to stay with you on Bama there. I, A&M feels like they're due for a beat down here after that performance last week. I, I don't think they're ready. All right, number 12, UNC. Favored by 10.5 versus BCU. BCU? surprisingly frisky so far what do you think about this yeah i mean i'm intrigued one game doesn't make a season but i want to buy 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 i mean they came out and just played so well in their first outing and now they're getting a unc team that's solid potentially overrated 10 and a half feels like too much not knowing really enough about either of these teams so i'm gonna go with bc 
I'm going to stick with UNC. I, I think that they're going to be able to handle their business there. Uh, BC, I think, is good and solid, but UNC just feels like offensively they're going to be able to put up enough points there. All right, number 25, Memphis versus SMU. A pick em, rarely seen. It's a pick em. This is a big one. Memphis has several competitive games this season. Obviously, we have uh, our loyal listeners, JT and Jackie Raymond. Jackie is an SMU graduate, so we love to throw the SMU picks in here. And I'm going to ride this SMU train. I think they're up and coming. I like what's going on over there. Let's go Ponies. Yeah, I'll go the other way. I'll go Memphis. I like that. I like that. Okay, number seven Auburn versus number four UGA. I love that this game is on this early in the season. UGA favored by seven. Do they have something in JT Daniels? What do you think, James? I do. I think JT Daniels is absolutely excellent. He has not had a lot of time there. Uh, this is a risky game, a weird game. Again, I wouldn't bet JT Daniels, especially with that injury. I mean, it's very possible, Allen, he comes out and just gets hit and he's done. But I like him. I think he's I think he's excellent. And uh, I just think Georgia has too much for Auburn in this game. But again, this is this this can go anyway. Man. I feel like this game is going to be super tight, and so that for that reason, I'm going to take Auburn. I I may pick Georgia to win, but the seven points is enough for me to go the other way. Arkansas at Mississippi State. Mississippi State getting a very nice little bump here. They're favored by 17 and a half. Yeah, this seems like free money here, and Mississippi State ranked uh, 16th coming into this game. It's exciting for them. 17 and a half against Arkansas, who's, in my opinion, the worst team in the SEC. I'm taking that all day. Like Mike Leach, unless you're Washington and you're the Huskies and you're playing defense against him or you're one of those teams that faces him a lot, he just shreds you. And I think he's got something he likes, and I don't see Arkansas stopping it. Yeah, I mean, Mike Leach at Washington State would have some inexplicable results, like you know, beating a really tough team and then losing to an FCS team. So I don't totally trust him yet, but against this Arkansas team, who I think offensively is going to really struggle to put up enough points to keep pace there, I'm going to go with the old Pirate. All right, UVA at number one, Clemson. Clemson at 28 and a half. Is this number too high for you, or what do you think? This is an interesting number because Clemson's like Bama, where they, they sort of shut things down pretty early on, and then teams score on them at the end. So I hate these games. I would not bet them. UVA on the other hand some turnover and turmoil but the question just comes down to how long do they play their starters Alan that's all you're asking yourself if they play their starters the whole game will they win by more than 28 and a half (laughs) absolutely I don't know that they're going to do that so I'm going to take UVA yeah, that I mean, that's really what you're gambling on. It's it's you don't really know. It's not a question of how much better Clemson is than UVA. I think they are twenty eight and a half points better, but I don't know if they will win by that. I'll take UVA as well. NC State at number twenty four. Pitt Pitt coming off in a very nice win. They're favored by thirteen and a half. Pitt's undefeated, and one JT Raymond in our podcast seems to think that Miami has a harder or sorry not Miami that that we have a harder schedule than Clemson does reverse that reverse Clemson that. Has a harder I can't even say it because it's so absurd he thinks Clemson in the ACC has a harder schedule than we do because they play Pitt and they play who else do they even play I don't know Notre Dame do they play Notre Dame they don't play Notre, they Dame. Do play Notre Dame I lost my mind when I saw the comment and I couldn't respond because I was too busy but Clemson definitely does not have a harder schedule than we do 
False. <laughs> and put Pitt, that out there now. Pitt is not good. I don't care that they're undefeated and that they're ranked 24th. They're not a good football team, Alan. They're just an average football team. They would get smacked by Old Miss or South Carolina or any of these other teams. In fact, JT, go look up the composite talent ranking for Pitt and for Louisville and for all these ACC teams that you're fancying because you've been watching too much ACC football. All right, NC State, I don't know what they're like. They're average. Pitt, they're average. 13 and a half, that's a weird line, but I like that it. it's not 14, so I'm going to take Pitt. I think Pitt's a little overvalued here. I, I think Pitt is solid. I think they're being a little overvalued because of that win against Louisville, who I don't think is as good as maybe we thought they were going to be. I'll take NC State. I think they keep it close. All right, Ole Miss at Kentucky. Kentucky favored by six and a half. This is really interesting. Like, do we end up valuing Ole Miss's offense versus the stability of Kentucky? This line seems crazy because Kentucky. I just always feel like Kentucky can't really score, but then Ole Miss's defense is really bad. It's true, but I, I I think I think that Ole Miss feels better about their loss than Kentucky does about their loss. And I'm just going to go with that as my sole metric and pick Old Miss to get within the spread. But I, I don't feel good about it at all. I, I mean, I'm with you on that. I, this is going to be really a fun game. I I don't know that Kentucky's going to be able to slow down Ole Miss. That offense looked really explosive there. So either way, I think this is going to be a real back-and-forth game because I think Kentucky will be able to score some on Ole Miss. But I like Ole Miss there too. It's going to be a fun day of college football. I can't wait. It's going to be super exciting. Hopefully you enjoyed today's show. As always, if you like this podcast, if you love this podcast, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, write us an email, become a patron on Patreon, drop us a dono. And of course, as always, give us your feedback. If this show was too long, if we spent too much time analytically going through the offense and the defense, if you want to see more of this or less of this, let us know throughout the years we've tailored the content to answer the questions and give you what you want. So certainly please provide us that feedback. We use it and we change the podcast accordingly. Alan, any other items? Uh, I'm really stoked to have Gator football back and I, I'm exposed. I'm stoked to see us take on different kinds of challenges. So this South Carolina team is not uh, a world beater, but it's again, this SEC schedule is so cool because you're getting a, a different test every week here. And I, yeah, the fact that the Gators are playing well offensively after the tremendous drought we were in makes every week pretty exciting. And it's fun because it's early, right? Like if South Carolina plays six more games and you get all this film on them, then That's I can true. really definitively say we're going to destroy them because you know. But in week two, you still don't really know. Like what do we really look like? Was it just the opponent that we played? And that's what makes, I think, week two the most fun. It's also what makes week two the week that you show the most progression in. And this is where you can really start to get an idea of what your team looks like. So I'm really interested to see what Florida looks like, what we clean up, uh, what takes steps forward, what takes steps back. And lastly, for me, Alan, I'll end the podcast on this since I butchered it the first time. JT, I'm going to give you your moment here. Uh, you came out today and said that you, you thought Clemson was not going to go undefeated. That was the comment. And because you make a lot of really fun projections, I want one to have a record on this podcast so we can revisit it later. But Clemson will not go undefeated. And the reason was because their schedule is harder than ours. 
So there, it's on the there public record. Now, when you're right, because I know you think you're right, when you're right, we can celebrate you at the end of the season and go back to this public declaration of uh, Clemson taking a loss. So we shall see. Alan, any final thoughts from you? Let's close it out, brother. Let's end it. We'll see you all next week, where we will be each and every week for the rest of the football season.